crime in me. I've diagnosed some people. I think it's been pretty accurate. Definitely done my fair share of psychiatry work. I've prescribed a few pills, you know. Crime in me. We are in no way responsible for the things that come out of our mouths. We are not experts, although we may claim to be, so don't take anything that we say too literally. We are not laughing at the crimes, we are laughing at each, each other! other. <laughs> Shut up, Zachary. I know! <laughs> as soon as we start! It's like he's got a sixth sense for it. He has a sick sense for it. <laughs> he does. Anyway, uh, be yeah. nice to him, even I, though he stole the rest of my milk uh, or whatever. Zachary, you know how important her daily milk Listen, is. Listen, this isn't the first time this has happened, okay? <laughs> so <laughs> I'm like at my wit's end at this point. <laughs> the milk, you're going to have to have a secret milk stash. There's no respect for my <laughs> milk in this house. <laughs> and listen, I even got cow milk and... It wasn't even organic. And what? he still drank it. Who he still are drank you? It. He was like, when I bought it, because I was like super pissed because he drank the rest of the oat milk and he didn't let me know. And I started making a morning, I started making a chai. Uh -huh. And I was like, oh, being all nice. I'm like, oh, you want a chai? And he's like, yeah, sure. And I opened the fridge. I'm like, where's, where's the, the milk? milk? <laughs> and he was like, oh, I finished that. And I was like, and you didn't say anything when I was like, do you want a chai? You weren't like, oh, actually there's no milk. And he's like, well, I didn't, I forgot or whatever. And I was like, uh. This is like maybe insignificant for you, but now I just ruined my chai. It's the one and thing like, I have. Look, I have like barely any left. This is my secret stash. Like, what are you doing? So then I like angrily stormed off to the store because I needed milk. I didn't want to waste it. And then I like got, I like was looking around and they were like out of all the milk, basically. Except for they had like a carton of half and half, like a small carton of half and half. And then they had a carton of like organic whatever but i had like change and i didn't want to oh, break no. a 20 <laughs> so i like went up and i had to like break a 20 and i was super pissed about it and i came back and then he's like <laughs> and then he's like oh can i have some of your milk and i was like well it's not organic and he's like well that's okay and i was like god damn it <laughs> and now he's like drunk the last of it again I think you might have a milk addict on your hands. I don't know what it is, but it doesn't, it just, I can't stash it because it's like milk will go bad. What do I do? Well, and you're not seeing him drink this milk, which means that he's like staying up real late to chug the milk or Here's what it is. getting he up wakes real up, early. Yeah, he gets up earlier than I do and then he'll make himself coffee. And then the thing that really got me mad was like before when I, when I was like, oh, we should get milk and we're at the store. And he's like, well, I don't really drink milk. You drink milk. Like, you can get it. It's fine. And then I was like, well, what about for, like, coffee? He's like, well, I don't need milk in my coffee. And then he used the last of the milk in his coffee <laughs> two times in a row. And I was like, well, I thought you didn't need milk for coffee. He's like, well, I don't need it, but I like it. And I was like, well, I like, I need it. Like, what? <laughs> I need milk in my teas and coffees. Like, what? Wow. Ugh. Speaking of milk. Speaking of milk. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Humblebee Herbal has uh, bath salts that are soaking salts. Bath salt sounds like, you know, it's not a drug. It's soaking salts. Yeah, please do you not smoke, smoke it, or like, snort it or whatever. You can literally just be smoking salt, and I don't think that'd do anything for you. <laughs> but it's like they've got um, Epsom salts and milk and um, rose petals and just like really good stuff. So check out their soaking salts. 
humblebeeherbal.com. Oh, there are two scents. There's like the spearmint eucalyptus, which is like really good for clearing shit out. Like mm. lately with the smoke, it'd be like yeah. really nice to just kind of like clear out your sinuses. And then they have like a floral scented one, which is just kind of like sweet and lovely. Oh, huh. well. Yeah. And milk soaps too. I mean, milk, milk. Milk, milk, lemonade. <laughs> Try some Humble Bee Herbal. Fudge is made. <laughs> oh no not not to say that if you take a milk bath that you will have to poop immediately but yeah, if you're lactose intolerant like i am you might i don't know i've but never they, thought about I that i mean they are working on uh coconut milk ones too so oh nice vegan milk salts intolerant. milk salts <laughs> <laughs> milk salts mm, yummy <laughs> Humblebeherbal.com. Oh, yeah, that was that was a winner. That was right. bad. Um, before we start the show, first we want to say, welcome. Welcome to this week's episode. Of Criminy. Of Criminy. We're your hosts, Angela, Angela and Matt. And Matt. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it's I was going to forget again? <laughs> yes. I thought I just had to say it because you were going to forget. There's always so. like a long pause. I'm like, oh, that's right. My name. <laughs> I have one of those. Yeah, do they even matter anymore? I don't even know. I mean, whatever. If you were tuning into this podcast expecting other hosts, then um, wrong podcast. Then you're going to have to order them from the Catholic website. Get Ooh, those hosts in nope. now. You can get them on Amazon, but don't support Amazon. Order don't them from get them from Amazon. Local churches. <laughs> yeah. Get them unblessed, not, though. Not you're to not say that we mean. support the churches, but, you know. <laughs> your local catholic church <laughs> look they I mean, need money right now they only got bailed out a little bit from the government because they pay taxes what no they don't fuck you oh yeah that's uh, right what and is happening? they only have like only a few properties with stashes of gold they're like fucking paul larue <laughs> with their like houses all over the world with like gold stashes look they need your money more than anyone do you know but- Please like they give are money not to churches. They cannot build their next golden palace without your donation. So think Please small donate. business, think churches. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to or seen the um Mormon temple in Oakland. Yes. Yes. Talking I have. About Remember that one time you were in the car and I was like, what the fuck is that mansion? What is like, what is glistening that? Glistening golden orb in the yeah. distance. Yes. So they need your money too, apparently. You know. Please give it to all the people <laughs> who clearly don't need it. Um, <laughs> anyway. Can you... Um, where were we? Oh, yeah. I can't I would see like your... to... I feel like oh. mom right now. I can't oh, see your face. Oh, my God. I totally forgot that we were FaceTiming. <laughs> How old are you? <laughs> The brain fog is real right now. Now I... you're going to pull the phone up to your ear and I'm going to see your cheek, like with our beloved Tia. Oh, Tia. Yeah, and what a great idea FaceTime to FaceTime. So you can now start you can see your ear. fucking cheek <laughs> for like an hour. Love it. Uh, but, you know, she like goes on and on, so I can't be like, uh, Tia, uh, Tia, uh. Oh, yeah, you know, I can't, you... uh. No, you no. cannot slip into that conversation. No. So I was just like, okay, well, I'll just do it, too. <laughs> Look at my ear. <laughs> um, we would like to apologize for the last couple episodes where you may have thought that you got a text message and heard a buzzing because we're so important that we receive 
so many messages and are idiots and forgot to put our phones the, on complete listen, silent. Listen, here's the thing. I'm not an idiot. I just don't have people messaging me ever. That's that was true, like yeah. one day of my life where I actually had people messaging me and I was like, what is this? I've never experienced this before in my life. Because <laughs> I'm horrible at keeping in contact with people and people uh, don't keep in contact with me. Right. Which is fine. But So, <laughs> so I'm not an idiot. It's just like very unexpected. All right. Well, I'm an apologies. Idiot. Apologies all around. Sorry about that. I tried to edit around them as best I could, but we'll see. You're popular. You should have known better. <laughs> I'm popular with my five friends that want to play Dungeons and Dragons with me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, sorry for the bad sound quality, especially this, which is probably going to be happening for a while now. Do you hear what that blender that? going? Yeah. Oh my god. Zachary's making salsa. <laughs> Zachary. Well, our tomatillos are done. Oh, my God. Just let that pleasant white noise take you to a meditative place. It's like, why aren't you in your sound studio, Angela? <laughs> <laughs> why? Because I live in a one-room house? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, we let's not tense. talk about this right okay, now. Okay. We're on a podcast. <laughs> Wait, I'm we're apologizing. That up. Okay, yeah. Apologies all around. Sorry that we're not the best, but we work with what we have. We're amateur and we're... Immature. <laughs> yeah, more and more lately. It's like, what is happening? I don't know. We're deteriorating. I, it's okay. I seriously am losing my grasp on the English language. I'm not even sure if thing. I wrote things properly last night. I don't either. Also, we're like losing grasp on reality because reality doesn't even exist. Like what we thought was real isn't even real. I mean, was it ever, though? No, it wasn't ever. That's the thing. We were all deluded into thinking it was, and now it's not. And now we're all like, oh, my God, it's not. I think there's a good majority of people that already knew. And then well, I just... feel like I already knew, but then it's like still, when it becomes apparent, it's like, oh, shit. Yikes. <laughs> when everyone's freaking out, not just me, but everyone else is freaking out, too, and being like, it's not real. And then you're like, ooh, so... ooh. Let's calm our minds with some stories of murder and mayhem. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> let's read some lovely, calming, soothing, smooth jazz. Do you have a murder? I do have a murder. Let's get to it. All right. I got information from Murderpedia, thoughtco.com, and a great article um, from talkmurderwithme.com, which is a blog. Yeah. So, as you know, the research is iffy. However, I'm just going to tell you what these other people have told me. Yeah. You know. Recap. I'm just saying that because there are... Well, there's one main scene that happens in my play. <laughs> Wait, what I don't are know you why I called it a about? scene or a play. In my story, there's one incident that happens that... More people said it this one way that's more believable, but this other guy said it another way that made it sound more dramatic. So I'm going to tell his way and then okay. just tell you the boring way. Okay, that sounds good. <laughs> then we get to decide. Sure. Choose I mean, it's probably own... the boring way. Was it choose your own adventure? Yes. Okay. But that's not till much later. I'm going to tell you the story of Herbert Baumeister. Hmm. So he's a yucky, yucky, gross, gross. Ew. A coward, um, you know, one of those yuckies. Okay. But going back before he started his yucky yucky, when he was born, he was born on April 7th, 1947, to a, by all accounts, relatively normal family. His, his parents were Dr. 
Herbert E. and Elizabeth Baumeister. I think I mispronounced it the first time. Yeah, he's a junior. His dad was an anesthesiologist, so they had money. Uh And he was raised in Indiana. So most of the story takes place in Indiana and Ohio. Oh, Ohio. Ohio. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so, because Brent's from Ohio and doesn't talk like anything. Anything yeah, different. but like people, some like most people don't have accents, and it's just like those few little gems you have to find that have like, such the best gems. accents ever. They are. Uh. You have to like mine for them. <laughs> Herb was the oldest of four kids, and early on, he started exhibiting some weird characteristics. He was mm, lovely, antisocial. Mm-hmm. You know, he liked to uh, play with dead animals, like <laughs> kill and stuff. He would. Can you imagine? Being it his was, mom? It was said that at, at one point he, on his way to school, he was walking to school and he found like a crow, a dead crow on the ground. Uh-oh. So he, he picked it up and they said he put it in his pocket, but I'm like, how big <laughs> is his pocket? Look, because... boy pockets are fucking huge. <laughs> they go on forever. They're like secret portals. I, do, I mean, unless they were cargo pants, just, I don't in know. In the 40s? Yeah. Like 50s? See, I don't think that they had... <laughs> Probably his backpack or something. He put yeah, a crow I'm like an outer pocket, like a backpack. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, he when he got to school, when the teacher wasn't looking, he put that crow on the teacher's desk. Lovely. For a good old laugh about. Was it a prank or a gift? Like I don't a misunderstood know. gift, maybe. <laughs> like a cat. <laughs> well, like a dead crow. I feel like it's such a bad omen, right? It's got a lot of negative uh, stereotypes about it, those well, poor I crows. Well, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like if your kid's, like, picking up and playing with dead things, you're like, no germs, like, let's not do that. <laughs> oh, it's like uh, the baby squirrel. squirrel. <laughs> he was just thinking that the little girl who Sweet picks up the squirrel. He's like, look. <laughs> <laughs> so cute. But they did the right thing where they like leave it outside germs. Mm-hmm. Like don't put and it down. Scrub her down in bleach. S- we're not gonna see it tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. We're not gonna play with the squail tomorrow. Uh yeah, yeah, no squails. Um at one point he got in some trouble at school for urinating on the teacher's desk. Okay, so I'm thinking it's not really gifts then. It's probably just no. like being a real dick. He's being a real dick. Yeah. And that was in his elementary school. Yeah, it's so young. Well, as a teen his dad decided because his dad's a doctor and so i think like he was seeing some signs in his son and decided Uh, that he wanted to get him diagnosed or get him checked out by a you know someone wow which is huge like in the 1960s when he's a teenager that's yeah super rare um and some sources say that they that the dad took him without the mom knowing because the mom wasn't didn't really believe in that stuff so like, like he's fine it's normal for him to play with dead things and pee on people's desks it's normal totally fine. it's just boy things yeah so some one source said that the dad kind of did it on the side and kept it from the mom and yeah he was so he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and multiple personalities some no. sources say but i know that that's not really like so much of not, a thing it's very unless you're super traumatized yeah that you it's very have, like, rare did also i feel like we talked about this before where it's like they're just diagnosing everyone with schizophrenia it's like oh there's something like a little bit different schizophrenia yeah so exactly like i don't know how accurate the diagnosis was it sounds more like he had antisocial personality disorder 
could be. Um, but uh, so they got the diagnosis, but they didn't seek treatment. And some sources said it was because the mom didn't know that, like, the dad couldn't go further so the dad with can't the be treatment. Like secretly feeding him pills. Well, but th- that's the thing is treatment during that time was electroconvulsive therapy. I was going to say that. Yeah. So they didn't have pills at the time. So basically Aww. the treatment, which doesn't really cure patients, it just kind of makes them more docile and right. less likely to lash out. So since the dad was a doctor, he might not have wanted that for his son because he knew yeah. what that could do to him. Yeah. Um, so I think that's more likely the case since the dad seemed pretty knowledgeable. I mean, he's an anesthesiologist, so he at least, he's a smart guy. Right, right. And he's oh. in medicine, so he sees the treatments happening, you know. That's so tricky. What do you do for your kid? Right. And mm. and there's supposedly nothing that actually happens. You can't really... Right. So why would you put them that? through that? Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, needless to say, Herb was a loner in high school. He didn't really have any friends. He felt like he couldn't really relate to anyone. He didn't fit in. Okay, I might be like really dumb, but do you think that dad's friend Herb is Herbert? Yes. What do you think his name is? Just Herb. Herb and Gale. <laughs> I, I thought Herb was just a name on its own. I didn't realize. <laughs> Herbert, dude. <laughs> wow. Oh my god. <laughs> I mean, it's possible that he could just be Herb on his birth certificate. I was going to say gift certificate, but that's (laughs) fully brain fog. Uh, But I think it's more common that it would be Herbert. Oh, my God. Yeah, of course it would be. I don't know why that just dawned on me. Okay. No, I'm fine. It's fine. Okay. Nope. You're totally normal. Just moving moving on. Yeah, totally fine. Nope. Um... But he well, managed... that's kind of like the thing when I was little and I, like, felt sick every day and people were like, oh, it's probably anxiety, but mom didn't want to put me on pills because I was, like, little. So it's, like, basically, you know, like, figure it out. It's like, what do you do? Do you, like, medicate them? Do you, like, give them the treatment? Well, or now do you, like, you, do ther- you do therapy to learn how to cope with things. Yeah, but I was terrified of adults, so I would not have done well in therapy. I don't know. I feel like once yeah. you learn to trust someone, you're fine. Maybe. I mean, look, I turned out fine. I just have a few issues. (laughs) (laughs) Just a few issues, like not knowing that Herb is short for Herbert. But, you know, had you gotten help back in the day, you might have known that. (laughs) How many Herbs do you know? None. I mean, just Herb. Yeah, the one. Yeah, and we've never been introduced as like, oh, Herbert's coming over. That's never happened. No, because no one says that about dad. No one's like, Robert's coming over. Bob's coming over. Look, I did know his name was Robert, okay? So that's like... Because you're his child. <laughs> oh, wow. God. I'm just anyway. saying, like, what... I'm just saying that's a really tricky situation for a parent when your child is, like, exhibiting things at a young age and it's like, what do you do for your kid? But you were going to say that's a really tricky situation for parents when they name them a name and they want to go by another <laughs> name. <laughs> Do you call them Herbert, even though they prefer Herb? (laughs) Because that's the name you chose for them. (laughs) But yeah, no, it's a tricky situation, um, especially in the 60s when there weren't really any answers. Yeah. I mean, there there are still no answers. You know, there's still limited answers and we're still trying to figure it out because no one is funding mental health, which is ridiculous. Well, and also the brain is like super complicated. (laughs) People are complicated. Yeah. Very complicated. It's like anything can go wrong at any time. 
Well, despite his weirdness, he was able to get through high school and he actually made some pretty good grades and he got into college, but he ended up dropping out after the first year because he just wasn't interested in anything. Yeah. And then it said like his dad kind of convinced him to go back to college the next year and he went for a semester and dropped out and then just said it wasn't for him, Mm -hmm. stopped going. So... Since his dad was a doctor, he was pretty well connected and was able to find Herb a job at a newspaper called the Indianapolis Star as a copy boy. Uh-huh. This guy that worked there named Gary Donna, he was (laughs) Gary Donna. He was an advertising executive who worked for the paper and he remembers Herb as sensitive as to the way he was viewed and treated by the higher ups. So everyone was like, oh, he's a little touchy. I mean, um, yeah. He obsessively wanted to be somebody. So he dressed oh. well and was eager. But again, he didn't fit in. So shortly after, he got let go of that job. But then he got a job at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, the BMV. <gasps> What's which... the BMV? I don't know did if that ch- was before the DMV yeah, or it if it was, changed. I'm not sure. But yeah. anyway, he got a job at the BMV. Well, that's a great place to hold power over people. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, miserable. <laughs> um, another job that his father was rumored to have gotten him. Herb began ranting and raving at fellow employees for no apparent reason. Oh, no. He came off as bossy and aggressive towards his coworkers, lashing out at them for no reason, as if he was playing a role, emulating what he perceived as good supervisory behavior. That's so weird. Mm Mm-hmm. Was he a supervisor? Not at the beginning. He was just working there, but he, like, exhibited all these things. And despite this, though, he he worked hard. He did work hard, and Mm -hmm. they said he was kind of a go-getter. And he started moving up the ladder. His higher-ups took notice that he had a real drive at work. And eventually, he became um, a program director. They're like, yeah, the guy who's yelling at everyone, he would make a great program director. Let's like, man, promote him right away. You know what we really need in a program director? Look, maybe that's what you need to be doing at work is just yelling at people all the time. They're like, <gasps> look, he's got real potential here. Oh, my God. I can, I'm going to own that store in the next three months. Yeah, start just start yelling, yelling and at- ranting and raving. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess back in the day it was seen as a positive. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? You gotta dress really, wear suits to work every day and just start yelling at everyone. Oh, man. Could you imagine me wearing a suit to a sports store? <laughs> As you're, like, <laughs> dripping sweat. <laughs> I would pass out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but think his... of how professional you'd look before you passed out. <laughs> this is true. Mm-hmm. Hmm. First, I gotta get a suit. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> His co-workers would later say, Herb had displayed what those who know him characterized as a bizarre sense of humor. While at the BMV, it took the form of urinating on the boss's desk. What? That's not a sense of humor. I guess, like, he would do it. No one knew, like, okay, so for a while, no one knew who was doing it, but the boss would come in and find pee on the desk. Uh And it was happening, like... He is weekly but like it's supposedly the the rest of the office knew that it was him (laughs) 
And they're just fine with it? <laughs> I like, don't know. They just joke. thought it was like that's a joke. Gross. That's like not a, a joke. <laughs> it's a 1960s, 1970s joke. You wouldn't get it. It's not a weird sense of humor that's like something mentally going on. <laughs> yeah. Not to mention uh, disgusting and... Yes. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not Exactly. Unsanitary. Yeah. Um, but somehow he managed to avoid being fired until... How? Until... Oh. Uh, there was a letter to be addressed... To be sent out to the governor of Indiana from the business and... Herb thought it was hilarious to pee on that letter. <laughs> that was too far, I guess. <laughs> what is this deal? Is it like a dominance thing? What's going know. on? Why does he think it's funny? I don't know. He's a weird He's a little guy. a practical jokester. Why? That's so gross. <laughs> you guys have the funniest prank ever. Just peed all over that thing. That's so bizarre. As charming as he was, he managed to what? meet no. a woman. <laughs> no. As charming as he was with his practical mm-hmm. jokes. Uh-huh. Yep. You know, yeah, so, of course. Some, you know, women, a lot of women say that they, they want a sense of humor in a man. We value a good sense of humor. That's true. <laughs> if you can make us laugh, that's like it. Done deal. So, you know, I mean, maybe she was into the pee-pee jokes. Who's laughing at the urination? <laughs> Her name was Juliana, and uh, Juliana Sater. She went by Julie. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow they got married in no, November Julie, of, <laughs> of 1971. Of course, after finding out that they had so many things in common, such as being conservative Republicans. Eating soup. Eating, <laughs> Liking <laughs> Talking soup. and not talking. We both like soup. <laughs> God, Best in Show is one of the... Top 10 movies ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and they both wanted to own their own business eventually. So, you know, so they had things married. in common right. like that. Like, you know, look, same values. If you are the same political party and you both have the same dream. Yep. Get married. Lock it up. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lock it up. Lock it down. Get married. <laughs> Get married. And you'll be glad to know that they got married in a Methodist church. Not that that matters, but someone decided to put that down. And okay. <laughs> I, I had to include it. So they're Methodists. So, you know, judge so them as you will. They go to church. They're Republicans. They're conservative. You know, delightful things that make me not want to like scream. the sweetest couple. It's like um, they just decide <laughs> that they would like to be ignorant about people and the world and humanity. But that's fine to each their own. Yeah, I mean, they might just be a little short on empathy, but, you know, that's what I Oh, yeah. Zero empathy. Unless it comes to them and their children, you know? Well, that's not really them. Okay. Yeah. With the hundreds of millions of similarities, you know, they they tied that knot. Anyway, about six they months... They tied that knot. <laughs> about <laughs> six months into the marriage... They double-knotted that knot. They triple-knotted that knot. They triple-knotted that double-knot? You can't triple-knot a double-knot, Lloyd. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> About six months into the marriage, for unknown reasons, uh, Baumeister's father had Herbert Herb committed to a mental institution. Um, okay, you say unknown reasons. I feel like it's probably, you know, he's... Well, there were known... I'm, I'm assuming that there were known reasons why it happened, but no one wrote about it. Right, right. No, no one I get seemed that. to know what the reasons were, but... I'm just... I, I'm thinking they're probably pretty apparent. Yeah, but apparently he stayed. He stayed there for two months. 
Well, good, because I thought you were going to say that she got pregnant. And I was like, oh, no. Oh. Oh, no. Just wait. Oh, no. <laughs> um, Julie didn't seem too phased by his going into a mental institution. She just stayed at home and did her thing. And um, She was a high school teacher. and But when, when her and Herb got married, she decided that she was going to be a homemaker. So she stopped teaching. She was a teacher? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Now I'm just thinking Peggy Hill. <laughs> An Espanol teacher? Uh, two, two-time substitute teacher uh, <laughs> of the year award. Um, he, so, you know, he got home and they were married and he was working. He was still working at the BMV and he made enough money there, I guess, so that she could stay home. How does he still have a job? This was, so before he, you know, pee-peed on the paper, that was just a, ju- <laughs> okay. that was just okay. a jump ahead. He, he was still okay. tinkling on the, on the, on the desk, he, was, he was doing a little pee-pee on the boss desk, but you right. know, that was all in good fun. I mean, that's just funny. Hilarious. <laughs> and, you know, so she was staying home and she had three kids. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then he made the pee-pee on the paper. He got mm-hmm. fired. Mm-hmm. And she was like, oh, I guess, oh, you shit. know, I'm going to, I'll go back to teaching to supplement the, your, you know, the lack of income. Mm-hmm. So she started teaching again and he decided that he was going to be a stay-at-home dad for a little bit while he nope. was looking for work. Which, nope. from uh, all sources, he was a great stay-at-home dad. He was really calm and patient and what? was loving and fun. The kids loved him. I cannot was... peg this guy. Right? Right? What the fuck? Yeah. yeah. He was a great stay-at-home dad. And then uh, he took some odd jobs um, and then before eventually he started working at a thrift store. Okay. And he was feeling kind of down on his luck because he was like, ugh, what the hell? I'm working at a thrift store, not making much money. This right. is not what I want to be doing. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm much the better than this. The boss doesn't even have a desk here. I can't yeah. even pee God. anywhere. Where am I supposed to urinate? The clothes <laughs> smell like pee anyway, so it's not like they'll notice. Um, <laughs> so he uh, he decided that he was going to make something of that time. So he, he really studied how the business ran, mm-hmm. the, the thrift store business, and he decided that he could do that. So... He oh, ended up borrowing some I money. I know this story. Oh, do you? Are they British? No, they're from Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, maybe they're British oh my at God, heart. I'm losing my head. Oh yeah, you know, I didn't specify Indiana, United States of America. I should have said that because, of oh course, God, you might have so thought Indiana, <laughs> UK. Why it's so embarrassing and it's on tape <laughs> that's fine um i say um, worse things because no I, I think i know no i think i know this story i think once i get into more details you'll have heard it because at first i was like i'd never heard it but then once this one detail comes out i was like oh no i think i think i might have put this one as one i was like maybe gonna do but then okay. i got too big and i was like i don't know okay 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 go ahead. so him and his wife borrow some money from his mom. It was said that he borrowed $4,000 from his mom Damn. so that they could start their own thrift store. 
1988, he and Julie opened their thrift store called Save-A-Lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like I could do that. That's, dude, when I was reading this, I was like, shit, all your, basically everything you're selling in the store is donated. Well, that's the thing. If you can get people to donate to you, yeah. like Goodwill, like what a mm-hmm. racket that is. Fuck. Exactly. Yeah. So um, put that in your mind as a possible thing we're going to, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to open a thrift to, store. Look, I get what you're trying to say and I agree. Yes. I will okay. put that in my mind as a possible put that thing in that your we're going to do. <laughs> we're going to make a save a lot. <laughs> Log um, that away. And it was actually kind of smart why I because they were British. Uh well, he looks okay, British. Ahead. I don't know if that's he a thing. Of, yeah, I mean, He's very white and Yeah, he's kind of pasty. I mean Herbert. I don't know. That's a kind of a, Baumeister. Well, I don't know about that. German. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> okay, we don't need to discuss this. They're like we're, it's fine. We're not trying to stay. We're in Indiana. Okay, okay, we're in Indiana. Get it out of yeah. your head that we're in the UK. Um, no, we're not in the UK, okay? Right. He yeah. was kind of smart about it because he got the um, Children's Bureau of Indianapolis, which was a charity for the family, for the area's families, mm-hmm. um, to, so basically people would donate the inventory to the charity, and then he would take that and sell it and then give them a portion of, you know, a percentage of wow. what was sold. So he was just getting all the stuff. Yeah. And selling it without having to do much of the work because they were already getting stuff. Wow. Um, so technically the inventory was owned by the Children's Bureau because it was donated to them. But they right. had a contract that they would give them a percentage. Um, shoppers loved the Save-A-Lot. They said that it was tidy and offered only quality merchandise. Mm-hmm. And it became a popular place to shop for families on a budget. In no time, Herb and Julie received high praise from the Children's Bureau, whose human cause greatly benefited from the couple's obvious management skills. So they were making money. The Everyone's Bureau happy. was making money. Everyone's yeah. happy. The stir, the stir, the stir, <laughs> the stir earned, the store earned $50,000 in its first year, which is like, I mean, in Indiana, in uh, during that time... Yeah, that's a good amount of money. Well, and for a first-time business, like four thousand yeah. dollars, and they're yeah. making like shit. And they're getting all the free. Pr- yeah. So yes, exactly. Amazing, good for them. So they opened a second store, and within three years, after living paycheck to paycheck, they were rich. Amazing, rich. So they're successful business people now. In 1991, the Baumeisters moved from their middle-class home into the fashionable Westfield District, nearly 20 miles from Indianapolis in Hamilton County, where they bought a where they bought a large, beautiful, multi-million-dollar semi-mansion, which was a uh, a Tudor-style home called. What's a semi-mansion? It was huge. So a mansion. Everyone else describes it as a mansion, but I guess I don't. I have no idea Some what the cutoff is. Some judgy journalist was like, a mm, judgy. Yeah, it's just it, not big enough. It's like it a semi. Kind of big. <laughs> <laughs> I would say it was a mansion. Um, it it was called Fox Hollow Farms. It's got a name. Yep. It's a fucking estate. Yeah, it was complete with four bedrooms, an indoor swimming pool, and riding stables. Hmm. It was on 18 and a half acres. Nice. Yeah. 
And Julie was super excited for the tranquility to raise her children there. And she described it as utopia where the kids could rollerblade without having to worry about cars coming around the corner. They had so like, so to get to their property, there's like the main road, which is still like a country road. And then it was a very windy um, driveway up to the main house. Wow. Uh, Yeah. And let's see. Yeah. So Baumeister became well respected and a successful family man who gave to charities. So everyone was like, dude is super cool. He's yeah. rich, so he can't do any wrong because we and he's all know generous, that. And he's, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, stress from working so closely together uh, soon followed. From the start of the business, Herbert had treated Julie as more of an employee. He's a real dick. Did he rant and rave at her? Oh, yeah. He yelled at her for no reason all the time. Mm. And to keep the peace, she decided that she would just take a back seat on business decisions. But it did, of course, take its toll on the marriage. Yeah. They argued and separated on and off over the next several years. The, Sa- the Save-A-Lot stores had a reputation for being clean and organized, but the opposite could be said for the, bomb- my- the Baumeister's new home. The once meticulously maintained grounds became overgrown with weeds. Uh-huh. Inside, the rooms were just a mess. There were just boxes and places... Furniture was just, like, haphazardly placed. It was just oh. super nice house, just they didn't do much about it. Housekeeping seemed to be, like, a super low priority for them. Hmm. Which I'm imagining if they're running a business and then fighting constantly when they're at home. Yeah. There's probably not much being done at home. <laughs> yeah, but you're fucking rich. Like, hire someone to, you know, organize your house. You could, but I don't think that he would have liked that. For reasons that you will know later. Right, that's called overshadowing. (laughs) Overshadowing? Yeah. Isn't it called foreshadowing? (laughs) (laughs) Or was it too much of a foreshadow that it was overshadowed? (laughs) Look, let's just scrap this whole thing and start over. (laughs) Dude. My brain is so foggy right now. Yours is foggy. I'm the one who's sounding like an idiot. You're the one who's like correcting me and shit. Well, just wait till you tell your story and then I'll sound like the idiot. Mine's written down. I can tell you. You better. You better sound like an idiot. I'm going to be pissed. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, the only area that, that, that seemed to have been taken care of at all was the pool house. Mm, wait they had an indoor pool but it was in like a separate house no it was like i think that the they called the indoor pool the pool house okay because you like yeah you walk through the house to get to it but then you'd like go down some stairs and then there was like a whole huge room room. that i think they just called the pool house okay um well, because it housed the pool. The pool. Right, right. It's the pool's house. <laughs> now I've got to try and make up for, well, like, glad that we cleared dumb. that. Like, look how intelligent I am. I could tell that pool house. I can use house was... as, like, a verb. <laughs> well, he kept a wet bar stocked and filled the area with extravagant decor, including, and this is the part that you might be like, oh, mm-hmm. I've heard this story before, mm-hmm. mannequins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
that he had dressed so and positioned to give the appearance of a lavish pool party. That's so gross. So <laughs> creepy. So creepy. Where was he getting these mannequins? I, oh, well, I guess he had a, he had a thrift store. store. Yeah. Duh! It's not weird if you order mannequins. Yeah. <laughs> Ew, don't say the ones he liked. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so apparently during all this on and off again fighting and stuff, Julie and the kids would go stay with Herb's mom. Here's the thing, though. Uh-huh. Like, you have kids. They're going to want to swim in that pool, right? Because kids love pools and water and shit. Yeah. They're not going to go around those creepy fucking mannequins. I think they're used to it. I think it's normal for them. Ugh. What if mannequins were normal for you? Ew. That's <laughs> <laughs> so gross. That, that is the most disturbing thing you've ever You're said like, to me. Friends come over and they're like, what the fuck? Like, what? You don't have mannequins in your pool house? These mannequins are, like, watching me. <laughs> but then you'd be like, well, I don't have a pool house. Maybe this mm, is normal. Maybe it's just what rich people do. Yeah. Um, they don't want to feel lonely when they're swimming. Ew. <laughs> I'd rather feel lonely when I'm swimming. That's, like, the best time to be lonely. <laughs> <laughs> so she, her and the kids would stay at his mom's house in uh, at Lake Wawasee. Wawasee? <laughs> Wawasi. I like Wawas. And the and Herb would stay home saying that he needed to run the stores, so he was gonna stay home, which I'm sure she was like, Great, I can yes. not be around you. Yes. You stay home. I'm gonna enjoy the lake house. She got along really well with his mom, so I'm sure it was She's just like, like I a need a oasis. Break those creepy ass mannequins. Yeah, you've been in that room for a long time chatting with those mannequins. <laughs> I need to leave. <laughs> So during this time, according to employees at the Save-A-Lot stores, Herb became careless and neglectful of his duties. So even though he was supposedly working when she was going, he he was half the time he didn't even show up. When he did, he was like super rude and unwelcoming. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the employees quit. And then the stores began to deteriorate. He had it all. Yeah. They just couldn't keep it together. He's a mm-hmm. yucky, 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 asshole, coward, scumbag. Here's the thing. When we have it all, they're not <laughs> mess it up for the both of us. Well, okay. If I'm spending too much time with my mannequins, you better say something. <laughs> if I buy more than three mannequins, <laughs> then, then we're getting weird. <laughs> you need to have some kind of, like, sit down with me and tell me I have a problem. <laughs> okay, deal. So, obviously, the business took a turn for the worse. Yeah. While Julie and kids were away, Herb began frequenting gay bars in downtown Indianapolis. Uh-oh. Uh-oh for is, I was going to say, for sure. Uh-oh for Uh-oh sure. Is for sure. Is for sure. So, <laughs> uh, Indiana, as you may guess, is a conservative state mm-hmm. now and was even more so in the 70s and 80s. But they had gay bars? Well, there's gay bars everywhere. They're just, you know, secret gay bars sometimes. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh, but there's usually, you know, the areas in town that the gays and the people of color live in and that the cops, you know, are just like, just don't go over there. That's the yucky part of town. Right, right. So, yeah, they have bars. It's just, you know. Uh, and so it was thought that by marrying Julie... He 
and and projecting an image as a staunch Republican, he was able to mask his gayness. But mm-hmm. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say like yes, maybe, and <laughs> I think he saw gay men as a weaker prey. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that could have been an attraction too. Well, and like you said, it's kind of like that part of town where the police aren't going to go. So if gay men go missing, they're not going to look too hard into it. Exactly. Yeah. More vulnerable for sure. So I wouldn't say a hundred percent that he was gay and that's why he was frequenting these areas. I think it, he could have been, he could have been bi, but I don't think his sexuality had anything to do with it. <laughs> right. He usually doesn't. And I think he had a lot of anger for some reason, which could have been internalized homophobia, which does happen a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I don't know. Hmm. But I mean, on the side of he was probably a little gay, Julie later said that in their 25 years of marriage, they had only had sex six times. She could count on two hands mm. in 25 years. I mean, that's barely two hands. I mean, know. and Borrow three of those... Finger, that'd be and, one hand. And three of those were to conceive children. Right. Well, it doesn't look great. Not looking great. Not that his sexuality, like, whatever. But... No, but... He could have been. Uh, and, I mean, you know, maybe she thought that he was, like, a man of God or something and was like, oh, he's so pure. He only... Well, listen. You're only, only supposed to have for sex for... Pro- exactly. That's exactly right. If we learned anything in Catholic school, you only do it if you want a baby and no more. That's right. So maybe he wanted six kids. <laughs> so he was a good... I don't know how the Methodists to do it, but maybe that's kind of their thing, too. I'm sure. I mean, that's pretty good, though, like... You know, six times in 25 years. Woo, that's a lot. No, no. <laughs> I mean, six times in three kids. Like, that's pretty, you know. Yeah, she half got the time. Pregnant, it... Like, half the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. Pretty good. Um, but, like, Julie said that she actually never saw her husband naked. Weird. Yeah, she said, Herb dressed in the bathroom. And when it came time to go to bed, he always put on pajamas, slipping between the sheets. And that he was ashamed of his skinny body. (laughs) (laughs) What? Yeah. Can you? Oh, I just, oh. That's so bizarre. Mm Mm-hmm. Never seen him naked? Right? In 25 years? But she doesn't seem to question much. Either that or he's just like such a dick that she's like, well, I'm not even going to bring anything up because you're you're just going to yell at me for some reason. Well, I mean, reason. if he's like embarrassed or whatever, but I just feel like you're like married, you're together. Who cares? Yeah. Who right? cares? I don't fucking... I don't know. Well, I mean, that's what you think. But then if you're getting married just because you guys are both conservative Republicans who attend church all the time, like... Mm, maybe you should look for a better match. I don't know. Who knows? But well, that was who, the I thing. I mean, they're like separating, getting back together, separating it. And it's like, but that was why like not a, get divorced. You know, that's the thing that's expected out there during that time, yeah. and it probably still is expected in most places that you just get married and that's what you do. Right. Especially if you don't want people thinking you're gay. <laughs> right. Um, So starting around 1991, the same year that Herb and his family moved to Fox Hollow Farm, young men began disappearing from downtown Indianapolis. It's just like, they're just trying to have like a good time, like meet with like people. 
Yep. Super a super vulnerable um group. There's like everyone hates us except for like the people here. Let's yep. just like all have a good time. So then together. you think if you're if they're there, then they must be somewhat trustworthy because yeah. they're not gonna out themselves for no reason, yeah. especially during And who would like risk it, you know? It, yep. Ugh. So, so you be, especially at a bar, you're drinking, you're a little trustworthy, someone's flirting with you, you're like, Oh, they must be, you know, into me. Why not? Why wouldn't yeah. why would they come risk being outed? Yeah. If they're not, you know, looking for the same Ugh. thing I am. Yeah. Well, in 1994, Virgil Van which is the coolest name I've ever heard. Virgil. Van de Griff. Van de Griff. A retired Marion County sheriff who ran his own private investigation firm in Indianapolis. Wow. Started, became, became involved in the investigation in investigating the disappearances of the young men. Good. So he, I guess he worked, you know, for the sheriff's department for years. And then when he retired, he said, no one is looking into missing people's cases. Like the, 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 the the cops don't care. They don't care. And he's like, this is not right. Something has to happen. So he started his own business. And a lot of it was for missing people. And a lot of the time it was a, just, you know, Someone went off and didn't tell the person, and then right. he found them. So he had a good majority of people that he was able to find that were fine, just misunderstandings, or that they had run off. Yeah, but good for him for checking in. Yes. Like, so, wow. you know, there are some good people out there. <laughs> um, and so he was contacted by the mother of a man named Alan Broussard, who was 28 at the time he went missing. Oh. He was last seen leaving the gay bar in downtown Indianapolis and um, she reported him missing in June of 1994. And then days later, the mother of Roger Goodlett, who was 32 at the time, contacted Vandegriff. Her son was last seen under similar, similar circumstances and was reported missing in July of 1994. So Vandegriff is like, this is too much of a coincidence. The two guys looked similar. We're like similar Mm -hmm. ages, similar build, similar look. So as an investigator, he thought something's not right. Mm -hmm. Um, So he kind of threw himself into the investigation of the missing men. He spent evenings at at gay bars and interviewed everyone and would bring in um, missing posters to show the people. Um, when he was there, he learned that there were actually more missing men. And because oh. it was the, you know, the gay area, they're not being reported because the cops don't care. So, or maybe so, their families have like disowned them. So they're right. not going to report so, them missing. But or... The gay bars were actually circulating these like magazines that they had produced that had lists of missing people. Oh for people to be on the lookout for. And so he ended up getting a copy of that to, to, you know, dive into more of like, there's more missing people here. And a lot of the patrons and bartenders were a little nervous to talk to him because cop, the cops, you know, they don't, (laughs) us queers don't have a good relationship with the cops in general. And to have someone coming in and poking around, you're thinking they're not going to try and help. They're going to try and shut you down or beat you or whatever. Or like accuse you of doing something or yeah, arrest you for nothing. So the number that of missing people seem to be closer to a dozen. Oh. And it became clear to Vandegrift that 
that this was the work of a meticulous serial killer and not random one-off killings or disappearances since like i said now that he's got a list of these people and he's got their pictures a lot of them look very similar and a lot of them are a similar age group so vandegrift went to the police with his findings and of course as you would guess they said nah not enough information we don't believe you who cares who cares yeah better that the Better that they're going away. You know, better that's the gays that are disappearing because we need to get rid of them anyway. Right. Because they don't add any value to our society. No, they're sinners. Um, (laughs) Were they all going missing from the bars? Yeah. It was always a similar situation, like from the bar or around the bar. Yeah. It was always like, oh, I, you know, I knew a guy, like my friend. And the gay community is so small anyway that like right. everyone knows everyone. So it was like, oh, I saw him at the bar yesterday and then I saw him get into a car and that's the last time I saw him. Or... So yeah, it's clear that it's like a pattern. Yeah. So yeah, the, the authorities didn't take it seriously. They often assumed that the men had just run off to practice their gay lifestyles, which like... What? what does that mean? Like, you know us gays need so much room to practice our satanic practice, rituals. Like and being like, humans. Uh, you know how much space we, we need to frolic gaily through the f- fields? Yeah, we don't know how to live life. We need to practice living li- Like, what? I don't, I don't know what that means. It's so fucking weird. Yeah, they're just running away in mass to practice being hu- like gay human beings. What, <laughs> what the fuck? Of course, that's where all the gays, the gay men were going. They were just going to go practice their gay lifestyle. Yeah. So well, Vandy- if you don't practice, you're not going to get better. So that's true. Practice does mean. make perfect. <laughs> what? <laughs> Are you feeling less gay than you could be? Maybe you're just not practicing enough. <laughs> you got to practice harder. <laughs> Wow. How many times have you frolicked today? Pretty sure it comes naturally. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, needless to say, Vandegrift's investigation hit a temporary wall. Uh, Yeah. Because the cops weren't going to do anything about it. Yeah. What could he do? Yeah. So, I mean, he was still investigating. He was still trying to find any leads he could, but it was just him and his team. I guess he had uh, a couple investigators that worked under him. And he did have a friend in the in the police department, uh, a woman detective that I'll talk about later, who I guess was sharing information with him because she had noticed that men were going missing, too, and was interested in finding what was happening. Way Um, to go. Way to be like a a powered woman. Yeah. yeah. Way to be an actual good cop and doing your fucking job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's shocking that it was shocking. (laughs) Shocking. I know. Oh, my God. Um, at the same time this is happening in 1994, Eric, their, uh, the uh, son of or Herb, I was going to say Herb, mm-hmm. <laughs> of Herb Herbert and Julie. Um, <laughs> Herbert's son. So anyway, Herbert, Herb, was at work one day when Eric was out playing on their property and he came across something weird. Uh-oh. And he brought it back home to show his mom. It was a human skull. <gasps> Julie freaked out, obviously. Um, Yeah. She asked Eric to show her where he found it, and he took her out on the property where the skull was found and discovered that there were enough bones to make a full skeleton. Just hanging out on the property? 
Yeah. Well, like, you know, they had, what, 18 acres? Yeah. So, and some of it was wooded, so... um, yeah, so it was, was kind of like half buried or whatever. Uh, uh, not, yeah, it didn't seem like he tried to cover it up very well. What would you do in that situation? What would I do? Yeah, what would you do? I would change the locks on the doors and, uh, <laughs> I mean, I would say call the cops, but they're not going to do anything. So uh, change the locks on the doors and not let that well, do Well, no, I feel in. like they would do know. something for, like, bones on the property, though. Uh, if think. anything, that's like an improper... Why? If anything, that's like improper, like mishandling, but he's like mishandling wealthy. of a corpse or whatever. Still, and he has all this check. acreage. You don't think they don't think that he has? He's got anything to do with those bones. I Someone like, else could have put them there. The there's fuck? nothing. Like literally, there's nothing tying him to the bones. Except for it's his property. Yes, but it's a lot of property, and yeah, but you do some research and fucking. It's not like, like investigation. he's got. It's not like he's not got the research. property fenced in and razor wired. Still. That's a huge fucking coincidence. I would like grab my kid and like call the cops and take them away from there and never like return. Well, yeah, that's what normal people would do. But you also have to remember that Julie has been part of his bullshit for years. Yes, but that's terrifying to find the bones of a human being on your property. But check this out. Oh, okay. (laughs) Check it out. Check it. Obviously, Julie was like, what the fuck, Herb? And Herb was like... She confronted him? She did. She was like, look what your son found. What is this? Tell me what this is. And he was like, in a supposedly monotone voice, it was just like, oh, that's just an anatomical skeleton from my father's practice. I was cleaning out the garage and decided to get rid of it by burying it on his property. I don't know why that was the... But she believed it. So here's my thing. She obviously knew that he had something to do with it. Well, she didn't put it there. (laughs) So run away. Like, you fucking run. No, she believed him, and she didn't question more. Uh Um, You don't just throw a bone skeleton. (laughs) A bone skeleton. You don't just throw bones or a skeleton out on your property. Yeah, and also she later said that in the days following, she went to go check the bones again, and they were gone. Yeah, of course they were. <laughs> Surprise. Mm-hmm. He thought maybe he would just dust off those old bones and put up that anatomical skeleton. <laughs> like, what? what? Donated or... I don't know. What? <laughs> so, just as Vandegrift was beginning to lose hope that any progress would be made in the investigation... So she didn't report it at all? No. Great. She believed his story. Yeah. And so Vandegrift is still going from bar to bar and talking to people. And he ended up talking to this one man who his, he went by Tony Harris, not his real name, but he wanted to be kept anonymous. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we're going to call him Tony. Okay. Um, and Tony came up to him with a story. Now, okay. Tony's story. This is what I was talking about in the beginning. His story for oh, the most part, the bones dramatic. the bones of the story, not to bring back bones, <laughs> but the bones of the story are factual. Like, uh-huh. this actually happened, but then someone else who wrote a bit in Murderpedia, I'm not sure where they got their quotes from, but it sounds good. So I'm going to add it, but just oh, know. Okay, okay. It could be Yeah, but let's hear it. Let's hear it. So, um... Give us some bones. Okay, so Tony, he told Van. Vandegrift that 
he went to the police right after this incident happened to him and police did not believe a word he said and accused him of being oh you were just practicing being gay yeah (laughs) oh maybe you need to practice a little harder (laughs) no they said that he was probably on drugs and he was lying Oh, wonderful. That's mm-hmm. just, that's what you want in a police officer. Right. Mm-hmm. And to just get the fuck out of the station, you queer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Basically. Mm-hmm. So, but Tony decided that his story needed to be heard. And after he'd seen um, Vandegrift coming in and asking people if they had any information, he was like, this is the guy that's got to know my story. Yeah. This guy actually fucking cares. Okay. So, according to Tony, he had chanced upon the suspect in a local gay bar in town called the 501 club and that he had actually seen him before in the indianapolis gay night scene but couldn't place him he was tall mm-hmm. lanky and silent um and they had never he's spoken that before that night body. he's got that skinny <laughs> um on a particular august evening Tony's attention was drawn to the man. Okay, so this is the part that I'm like, I don't know. Because, like, the short and sweet version was they chatted, they kind of, like, got along a little bit, and they decided to go back to Herb's place. Yeah, he's probably like, I got this fucking cool pool. Well, he did tell... The one thing that is true is he did tell um, Scott... First of all, he told Scott that his name was Brian Smart. So smart. So smart. And um, he told him that he was a landscaper and that he was landscaping these like wealthy people's house and that the people weirdo. Right. And that the people hadn't moved in yet. And so he had Uh the whole house to himself. And there was a pool in a pool house that, Mm -hmm. you know, we could go swim at. I've got they've got a fully stocked bar. We can just go party there. It's like, you know, this is my house. So it's like no connection, you know, it's like, oh, obviously right. it wasn't this dude's house. Right. Um, so I can get that, but fuck. Okay. So, but then this other article was like. But also, why would the landscaper like be staying in the house? Because he was working on the landscaping before the people moved into the house, according to him. No, I get that. But like still. Yeah. They're just like, oh, yeah, we're fucking rich as fuck. You can go ahead and live here while you landscape. Well, it was supposedly like, you know, he was going to be he was going to be there for a month doing all the landscaping before the family moved in and then he was going to leave. So I don't know. know. I'm not saying it's believable, but whatever. You know, you're drinking at a bar. You're getting on with someone. Pool house. Pool pool. house. Yes. Let's go to some rich. A mansion? I just want to explore someone's mansion. That's what I'm saying. I'm guessing he left out the mannequin thing. He did not say anything about the mannequin. There's like a party happening already. (laughs) Oh my god, it is everyone's gonna love you. (laughs) You have got to meet Greg. He is just fabulous. He's a bit stoic, but (laughs) his friend Chad is a little stiff, but you know. (laughs) They warm up eventually. But this other article said that, so remember Roger Goodlett, the one of the guys that had, had gone missing, that his, mo- his mother reported him missing? Yeah, yeah. So Tony had said that he was friends with Roger and was wanting to see what happened, like trying to figure out what happened to his friend. Yeah, yeah. And he noticed this guy staring at a missing poster for Roger. Ooh. And he said that I just had a feeling by the way he was captivated by that poster that he was the man who killed my friend, Roger. 
Tony said that Van Tony told Van de Grift something in his eyes. Um, and then suspecting the stranger was, was responsible for Roger's disappearance. He started talking to him that night in the hopes of just finding out more information. Yeah. I buy so, it. So, um, and I kind of like part of me buys it because like I said, the gay community is very small. So you yeah. would want to know. And some guy that you're just like, I don't really well, recognize the police him. Aren't that much. Doing it. Like, yeah. yeah. If the police aren't doing it, it's kind of like, well, it's someone on you needs to find out what happened to him. Yeah. And this all these other guys. This guy looks suspicious as fuck. Like I'm going right. to talk to him. Right. Which is why I wanted to include it because it seemed plausible. But I also just wanted to let everyone know that it could just, I mean, the bare bones of the story is true. So yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so like I said, the man called himself Brian Smart and he, Tony, uh, he evaded Tony's subtle inquiries about Roger, mm-hmm. but he invited Tony out for the night explaining that, like I said, he was a landscape artist from Ohio, currently hmm. living in an empty house, um, before the landscape, before the owners moved in and he wanted to take Tony back to his house to, sorry, the owner's house. For a cocktail and a swim. He's really from Ohio, right? Yeah. What a weird, like, what a weird thing to drop. Yeah. So Tony agreed, and then the night of weirdness began. <laughs> God, if, like, Tony's super brave. Yes. If he's like, I'm gonna go and find out what the fuck happened to my friend. Dude, seriously. And this if guy that... could be responsible, but I'm gonna, like, fucking go for it. Yeah, this story gets crazy. Um, and yeah, like you said, he's got to do the police work because no yeah. one else is caring about what happened to his friend. Yeah. So from, for this story, I'm going to refer to Herb as smart because okay. that's what he told him that his last name was. Right. So smart led Tony to a gray Buick with an Ohio license plate. Oh, they why, drove... why does he have an Ohio car? Uh, I don't know. Are they, they cl- they're yeah they're close to ohio i don't know i think they lived in ohio before they moved to indiana i think i'm not 100 percent sure don't quote me on that stop asking tough questions i don't know okay anyway (laughs) they drove north and but as far as but it was hard for tony to tell where they were going because it was dark and he had some he had had some drinks so he was trying to keep track of everything but he had never really been north of indianapolis so it wasn't very familiar to him Plus, it's like country roads and it's shit. Like, road, how are you yeah. gonna know where the fuck you are? We went left, right, 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 left, left, right. <laughs> I mean, that would be like amazing to remember that. Even. <laughs> exactly, and you're drunk, so yeah, I don't know. Uh. So they arrived about thirty minutes later at a large, stately Tudor-style home. Semi mansion. Semi mansion, <laughs> not quite full mansion. <laughs> Smart led Tony to the pool house. And, um, the place struck Tony as weird, obviously. He noted the mannequins around the pool and immediately... Well, how would you not? (laughs) He immediately felt uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. And Smart, noticing Tony's reaction, said, Ah, I I get lonely here. They give me company. So, like, not only are you a landscaper in someone else's house, but you brought your own mannequins. filled it with mannequins? (laughs) Like, they're not gonna be happy about that. That's Weird. fucking disturbing. <laughs> I'm here for a month. I had to bring like my whole army of mannequins. <laughs> what, you just travel around with those? Like, what the fuck? Yep. 
You might have noticed the bus out back. That's my personal daily driver with me and Why my mannequins. Why couldn't you just be like, I know the owners are fucking weird, right? Like they have all these weird an- mannequins. Well, that would have been a much less creepy thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, hey, they're my mannequins. Don't say anything about them because they're like my friends. They're my like, friends. Fuck off. Yep. Welcome to the pool party. He offered Tony a drink and Tony was like, nah, I'm good. Yeah. Nevertheless, Smart insisted that they party, but first he excused himself briefly. When he returned, he seemed looser, less timid, and grabbier. He then asked Tony if he had ever engaged in erotic asphyxiation before. Uh Uh-uh. And if he would like to try it. Uh Uh-uh. Tony thought for certain that he must have been on some drug, or that he must have done some drugs when he went in the other room, probably cocaine, he speculated. Oh. Um, because he was like very like grabby uppity and, aggressive and, and yeah, shit. and like talking yeah. a lot and like not timid. So he told Tony, "You just want to pinch these two veins on your neck." He continued indicating the carotid uh, car carotid carotid yes. arteries in his own neck (laughs) and he said (laughs) and he said it's such a great buzz you should uh you should see how someone looks when they're doing when you're doing it to them their lips change color that's how you can tell it's working no (laughs) not wanting to anger the stranger the strange unpredictable man tony agreed to try it no tony (laughs) With a hose, Tony, so uh, there was a hose by the pool, and yeah. Smart was like, yeah, just, this is how you do it, wrap this around my neck, and then, you know, so Tony was like, okay, and he put it around Smart's neck, and Smart was oh. like, yeah, and started masturbating. What? Ew, what? <laughs> okay, I thought, okay, okay, I was confused. I thought Tony was going to, like, let him do it, but he was well, like, oh no, Tony. So, he's like, you know... All right, this was awesome. Now it's your turn. So Tony, like, laid down on the couch, probably had to scoot a mannequin over. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Smart began choking him. Tony could feel the hose getting tighter and tighter with no sign of stopping. He realized that Smart was probably going to kill him. Yeah. So he pretended to pass out. Smart. And the hose around his neck loosened. And Tony lay there for a minute. And then... So this is where the two stories differ. Either he opened his eyes and Smart was shocked that he was alive. Yeah. And kind of was like stumbling. Or the other story is that he opened his eyes and he was shocked and kind of upset. But then he said, probably to cover his tracks... Oh, you scared the shit out of me. You you know you can die doing this. There 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 have been uh-huh. accidents. Like don't scare me like that. You you could have been killed, Tony. It's dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> right. So then supposedly according to this other source, Tony decided that he wanted to know what happened. So he said, "Is this what happened to Roger Goodlett? Was he Ooh. one of your accidents? Were there others?" Um if Tony hoped, however, to raise a confession, he was disappointed. Brian only stared at him, not not comprehending, lost in a daze of whatever substance he had ingested. 
Eventually, Smart's speech began to slur, and he was overcome with sleep. While he was passed... I don't think that was cocaine. I don't know what the fuck that was. Um, While he was passed out, supposedly... This is the other thing. So one of the stories is, like, he was upset that he woke up and was like, ah, I'm going to drive you back home. Wasn't that fun? And then just drove him back to the bar. Then this other story was he passed out. And Tony went went through his went through the property, kind of just like trying to find any information on this guy to bring yeah. to the police. He couldn't really find anything, but he was looking around, and it was obvious that that Smart was lying to him. Obviously, because the house wasn't empty; there was right. stuff strewn about, and it looked had looked like it had been there for a while. And there were you know kids' bedrooms that had stuff in them. Yeah. And so he he thought that Smart was probably the owner of the property. But as he was still looking, continuing to look for evidence, Smart started to wake up. And then somehow Tony convinced him to drive him back into town. Spooky. Um, the two got into Smart's car and he drove Tony back to Indianapolis. And he said, hey, you're a good sport. You really know how to play. Ew. Which is, ew. <laughs> As the car rolled into town, he made Tony promise to meet him at the 501 Club the following Wednesday. What, so so Tony actually agreed. kill him? Well, that's what I'm thinking. Like, yeah. oh, I messed up this time. And um, Vandegrift said that the only reason he thinks that he didn't uh, or he was unable to or that he maybe like decided not to go through with it all the way was because unlike the other guys, Tony was a lot taller He was like six foot five or something. I was going to ask because, but he was like anonymous. So I was going to ask if he looked like the other, the other um, victims. I I didn't see any pictures, obviously, but um, I watched an interview with Vandegrift and he said, because he had met him. So he said that he was a lot taller than the other victims. So I feel like it makes sense that he would approach the dude and be like, Yeah, he wasn't approached. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So when Vandegrift, so, you know, he's telling the story to Vandegrift and he's like, yeah. yeah, the dude wants to meet me at this bar at like next Wednesday or whatever. And Vandegrift is like, oh shit, let's set up a sting operation. Oh so wow. They're he, both like doing their investigations at the same time. Yeah. So he wow. got some of his, I don't know, you could call them agents, but his, you know, his, which his detectives, his detectives underneath him and they set up investigators. Yeah, they set up a, an operation at the bar that he was supposed to come to, and they waited and waited and waited, but he never showed up. Yeah, of course he never showed up. Obviously, after this this story, Vandegrift was like, all right, we need to find this smart guy, because he seems like he is good for it. Right. For all the disappearances. But unfortunately, since it was dark and Tony couldn't really tell exactly where the house was, he gave him kind of... An idea of directions, but there were, uh, you know, hundreds of houses in this area that were big, nice houses. The one thing he did say was that it had a very curvy driveway up to a house. And so the the Vandegrift and his detectives, they would go on drives all the time, looking at properties, trying to find ones that fit the description until they they finally found a place. Oh, and the other thing is, the only other thing that he knew about the property was that he remembers seeing a sign outside that said something something farms. Right. So they were able to find a place that said farms, or no, so before they were able to find a place, they're looking and looking, whatever. And one night, Tony had just happened to be out at a bar and he saw smart walk in Uh-oh. so he 
I guess he like talked him up a bit and just kind of like chatted with him. And then when Smart went to leave, he went outside to watch him drive away and saw what car he got in and wrote down the license plate. Nice. So he gave that information to Vandegriff and Vandegriff was able to trace the plates and it didn't, it wasn't owned by a Brian Smart. Oh, it was no. owned by a Herbert Baumeister. That's amazing. So with that information, they were able to find his property and it was exactly as he, as Tony had described. Wow. Like everything to the T was exactly as he had described. So on November of 95, detectives went to Fox Hollow Farm and asked if they could look around the property. Of course, Herb said, nope. Cause they, and they have no re- real reason to look around the property right. other than Tony's story. So they can't really get a search warrant. Were these police officers? So, I don't know. Honestly, sure. I thought I thought that they were. And then I watched something else and it was like, oh, they were just the investigators PIs. for the... Yeah. Yeah. But it could have been... It could have been... Um, hmm. So, but Herb said nope, and detectives were like, hmm, maybe we could go to Save-A-Lot to go shopping and get some sweet deals. What? No, I'm just kidding. They they thought that maybe <laughs> they could go to Save-A-Lot to go talk to Julie to get her permission to go on the property, because it was her property, ah, too, uh-huh. and she was working that day. So they went to Save-A-Lot, and they were like, oh my god, how much is that set of tea cups and she was like that was uh, uh, anyway uh-huh <sighs> but she was like no you <gasps> cannot go on my property because herb what? said no bitch you found a skeleton you're gonna say no and julie at later on asked her what that was all about and he said he didn't know and that he had nothing to do with whatever they were doing mm-hmm. and she was like sounds legit she's so, like i trust you <laughs> totally trust you and now that skeleton in the backyard is even more disturbing. Uh, yeah. So remember how I had mentioned a female detective that was yeah. actually in the police force? So her Badass. name is Mary Wilson, and she specialized in missing persons cases. And like I said, was a good friend of Vandegrift. And she had been involved in following up on, you know, a bunch of the missing cases. And was she was also involved in trying to find where this house was Mm -hmm. and now she so she was involved in trying to get the search warrant and everything so they have actual police assistance from her at least right hamilton county officials refused her request what the fuck they basically i'm not joking were like this man is rich rich people don't kill people you're crazy you're barking up the wrong tree and who cares about gay people going missing like you need to leave this guy alone oh he's rich my god and you have no evidence and rich he's rich people don't kill people nope god damn like, it. you're barking up the wrong tree he mm. he owns businesses he gives to charity what do you he would mm-hmm. ne- you know he's an upstanding citizen Mm-hmm. So some time passed, and that then horrible. Yeah, and then in June of 1996, Julie appeared in Mary's office. Uh oh. Julie told the detective about how her husband Herb was basically having a nervous breakdown, and their business was in ruins, and she was filing for divorce, 
and she was concerned that he was going to try and take the children from her. Ew. Um, and that the image of the skeleton that was on the property <laughs> kept flashing in her mind. And Mary's like, uh, what? What, <laughs> what skeleton? <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> And lastly, she granted Detective Wilson permission to search her home and property. Uh-huh. During Good. this time, Herb was visiting his mom, which I don't think he was really visiting. I think that since they were on the verge of a divorce, he was, like, staying with the mom just to yeah. give space. And he had their son with him up there at the lake Ooh. house in Wawasi. I just wanted to say that again. <laughs> um, Detective Wilson and three Hamilton County officers carried out the search and they said that uh, the county officers were like, this is stupid. Why are we even here? We're not going to find anything. This guy's rich. He's, uh, you know, he's basically a god. Like, mm-hmm. what? this is dumb. And she mm-hmm. was like, we're going to find shit. And they were like, I don't think so. Well, well, honestly, they only had like four people for 18 acres. Like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. They yeah. obviously like didn't give that much credit to this no they were just gonna go and be like see nothing to see here now you can stop bugging us about it right so the officers were in the backyard and uh they noticed something odd they saw some rocks like little gravel bits Uh except they weren't gravel bits at all Uh turns out these bits were actually charred crushed up bone which they just like saw them in the backyard Yep. What the fuck? That's so obvious. Which you forensic... have 18 acres. Yeah. Like, what the fuck are you doing? You don't think that they're going to come to your property. I don't know. I mean, they I, already I did think he, he thought that he just did a good enough job. <laughs> I have no idea, but obviously they were forensically tested and confirmed to be human. Ooh. So with that, the following in the following days, the site was excavated... You know what? what? Like, they lucked out so much. That dude has 18 acres. If he had, like, taken that pile and just, like, scattered it everywhere. Uh-huh. Like, they wouldn't find shit. At if least like, not. like, buried f- bodies, like, yeah. deep, like, way out. Like, they wouldn't have found anything. Yeah, at least not. So they were, yeah. At least crazy. not with the amount of effort that they were going to give, but they just happened upon these in the first Yeah, that's day. insane. That's such So, luck. Yeah. While the digging continued into the late hours, other policemen checked out the interior of the Baumeister home, and they found the mannequins, the wet bar, yeah. the pool, just as Tony Harris had described. So they were oh, like, all right, that. this mm. gay man may not be a liar on drugs. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they also found a semi-hidden video camera that the Ew. police immediately suspected had been used to tape the strangulations. Gross. But they didn't find any tapes. Oh, man. Um, it appeared that the killer had burned his corpses under piles of leaves and garbage and then just kind of scattered the remains about. Not very well, though. No. And... A question that the police had was, how could Herb have strangled and burned and buried these men without his family's knowledge? Well, he was so rich. How could he have done it at all? Well, right. (laughs) Well, they're just trying to come up with excuses, but they were like, I mean, how did Julie not know? And she was like, well, we spent, my kids and I spent a lot of time with his mom because he is weird. Yeah. And it so happened that it 
the times that he was gone, or that the, the, sorry, that Julie and the children were gone coincided with the times that these men were going missing. Fancy that. Very fancy. (laughs) (laughs) And after they had combed the entire 18 acres of the Baumeister property and found more than 5,000 bone fragments and teeth, members of the team were soon to learn that their search was far from over. Wow. Neighbors from an adjacent farm crossed in crossed into the police cordon to inform them that they had found evidence of yet more bones next door. <gasps> Ooh. They led investigators to an area cut through uh w- cut through with a drainage ditch that separated the two properties. And there in the ditch were just a bunch of human ribs, vertebrae, spines, just there. So he's there. just throwing bodies into the ditch yeah. and nobody notices. Yeah, because the property is so big, no one really goes to the ditch, you know, within the... Oh my god. Neighbors are seeing the police activity and they're like, what's going on over here? Oh my god, there's bones. Oh my god. One of the, office, one of the officials said, Jesus Christ, they're everywhere. Uh, yeah, because you didn't intervene earlier on. Yeah, the bones were so numerous and intact that on the Baumeister land, they had actually stuck up visibly from the mud. (gasps) Like, no, they didn't even try and cover it up. (sighs) (laughs) It said, shovels drew up not only more bones, but with them, Cans of Miller Genuine Draft Beer. Oh, come on, Miller. <laughs> Herb's favorite drink. Ew, Herb. You're rich. What are you drinking Miller for? <laughs> Ew, Herb. That's so gross. I told you, he's a yucky. He's super gross now. <laughs> and on one of the bones, there was a set of handcuffs. Oh, no. Um, Which, what brought to Julie's attention, she was like, oh, shit. We got a pair of handcuffs into the thrift store and they went missing like months ago. He's stealing from his own thrift store? <laughs> yeah. Also, why are there handcuffs at a thrift store? Someone Who's donated donating, them. Listen, to the children's like whatever department. It doesn't go to children. It goes to the money goes to children. It's not like they're getting the, these <laughs> handcuffs. Oh my God. Do you think it came with keys or no? They're like, you have to figure this out on your own. Good luck. Good luck. <laughs> Wait, how how many people? Are you going to say how many people? I will say. Okay. Wait, so they're just seeing, like, bones sticking out of the dirt and nobody, no- like, the kids didn't notice. She didn't know, like, no one fucking noticed. No, no one went to that area until they were searching not, the entire like, land. How are you exploring and playing when you're a kid and you have all that property? How are you not, like, playing? Uh, I don't it? know. I'm like, as a 13-year-old boy after the first skeleton, I might not be go poking around much anymore. <laughs> Maybe. And I guess they were kind of gone a lot at the lake or whatever. Yeah. So I don't, oh. I don't know. And I'm sure that Herb had weird rules. Like you can only go hanging out in this area. You can only go in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, so in the area in between the properties, 140 bones were estimated to belong to those of another seven men. So the mortal count had risen to an estimated 11 men killed. However, oh only eight were eventually identified. Oh, that's so sad. The ones that were identified were Roger Goodlett, 34, Stephen Hale, 26, Richard oh. Hamilton, 20, 
Manuel Resendez, 31. Mike Kieran, 46. Johnny Bear, 20. Alan Broussard, 28. And Jeff Jones, 30. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was really sad. On one of the videos I watched, um, I believe it was Alan Broussard's mom who was talking. And she said that she was at a neighbor's house when the neighbor said, oh, uh, I just heard on the news that they found bones on this one property oh, God. and she didn't know that her son had gone missing. And, and then she, she, so she didn't realize the impact of what she had said to her neighbor, you know, would have done. So she said she was like really upset and she really wanted to go to the, the farm to try and find her son, but she knew it wasn't going to be good <sighs> if she did. Horrible. So now, finally, after finding all these bones, a warrant was put out for Herb's arrest. <laughs> Unfortunately, Uh-oh. he's at his mom's house, and I guess the the police were concerned that he was going to hurt his son or take some kind of drastic action. So uh-huh. initially, before Herb found out there was a warrant for his arrest, they sent out a... They, I don't know what it was called, but basically they wanted to try and get the child back to his mother. Right. So they had cops go and try and get the child, which they did. They got the child from him, and he thought that it was part of the divorce proceedings. Right, like, right. oh, she's being vindictive and trying to take my son or whatever. Yeah. And for whatever reason, when they took the child, they didn't take him. They <laughs> let him go. <laughs> So, of course, he's like, like, well, we'll get him later. He's the one that's like, you know, this mass murderer, but it's okay. We'll take the kid first. I have no idea. The kid would be safe if they take him. Like, what? I have no idea what what was going on in their minds. Mm -hmm. But once he realized what was going on, he fled from his mother's house and crossed the Canadian border. What? Okay, so he crossed the Canadian border and his car and stuff. And at one point, a Canadian trooper who saw him, his car was parked underneath a bridge and she like stopped and was like, what you doing under here? And he was Mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm just a tourist. I'm just sleeping, getting a little rest before I continue my journey. And she was like, oh, okay. Um, How does that always fucking happen? And at the time she had noted that there was some luggage and what looked like a pile of videotapes in the (gasps) backseat. Oh my God. But I guess we'll never know what the videotapes were of. Oh, um, my God. Because on July 3rd, the next day after this trooper had stopped and questioned him, a group of hikers discovered his body Aww. in Pinery Provincial Park in Ontario. What a piece of shit. He suffered a single bullet wound to his forehead. Next to him lay a three fifty seven Magnum revolver and a suicide note. The note, um, in the note, Herb cites his failed business, the impending bankruptcy, and the upcoming divorce as his reasons for taking his life. Oh, not that he murdered? He made no mention of the young men whose remains were discovered in his backyard. Mm -hmm. His final, this is so weird, his final words on the three-page suicide document explained that he would now eat a peanut butter sandwich his favorite <laughs> snack, and then go to sleep. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, and when eventually police found his car, there were the tapes were gone. 
and they tore the car apart to look for evidence and they found a spot of blood or they, they opened the trunk to try and get some mm-hmm. forensic evidence and he had taken the trunk lining out of the car. So there was mm. like no evidence. They what found shit. they it's found like you're gonna a kill yourself anyway. Why not leave people uh, with like some kind of closure? No, he's a coward. Um, they found a one tiny spot of blood in the trunk, but it was too small to test for anything. Mm. And then, okay, further investigations into her Baumeister's secret life resulted in further disturbing revelations. But between 1980 and 1990, before he had moved to the Uh semi-mansion, the bodies of nine young gay men had been (gasps) discovered dumped along Interstate 70 between Indianapolis and Columbus, Ohio. Oh, God. These men shared similar characteristics in terms of age and looks to the men whose remains were discovered in Baumeister's yard. They had all been strangled to death, and up until 1998, the unsolved murders had been attributed to a serial killer dubbed the I-70 Strangler. In February of 1998, a witness came forward explaining that he had seen a photo of Baumeister and recognized him as the man who had been seen, or as the man who he had seen, Michael Riley, leaving an Indianapolis club with in 1983. Riley's body was later discovered in a stream off the I-70 just outside Indianapolis. And like I said, in 1991, the bodies stopped turning up along the I-70, which corresponded with when he had moved to Fox Hollow Farm. That is horrible. The grounds of his new home now provided him plenty of space to discard his victim's remains. And all told, he could have 22 or more victims... Had he not been an asshole and killed himself. And was he was he killing those people while he was being like the stay at home dad when they like were broke and shit? Yeah. Yeah. Piece of shit. Those poor, poor men. Yep. And so a lot of the men on that had that were murdered on I-70, they're attributing to him. But because he killed himself and didn't confess to anything and they don't have any evidence. Sure. They'll never I mean, know for sure, which is also why they think that he probably has a lot more victims that we don't know about. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty clear it was him. Yeah. And the motive was the same or the MO was the same. Everything basically was the same. The guys looked very similar. I mean, I wonder because he like she was the one who's going back and forth between their house and the mom's house. Well. Right, so whenever she was gone, he could do that. And also, when he was working at the BMV, I'm sure if he's working, excuse me, if he's working full time and he's like, oh, honey, I'm, I'm going to work real late tonight, mm. she's not going to question that. Right. Ugh, gross. I can't, I can't peg him. Like, I don't, maybe it was like antisocial personality disorder. I have no idea. I mean, it could be a combination of things. Oh, so are we doing toss salad, scrambled egg? Yeah, toss salad, scrambled egg. The toss salad and the scrambled egg. Toss salad, a scrambled egg. 
The tossed salad. The tossed salad. And the scrambled egg. A scrambled egg. So a tossed salad is someone who clearly knows right from wrong and chooses to do wrong anyway. Right, so the tossed salad has more components. The person is able to compartmentalize. And a scrambled egg is someone who can't tell right from wrong and they're just completely scrambled. Just one component, one track mind. They're all kinds of mixed up. There's no focus, they're disorganized. I, yeah, I could not peg him at all. I was like, oh, definitely toss salad because he's, he's making these choices. Sure. Plus, he he's not, I mean, yes, he didn't do very well of burying the victims and hiding them. It we did didn't seem, think that he I had mean, to. He right, really exactly. didn't have to. Exactly. And that one dude didn't survive and that one, the other dude wasn't like interested in like people going missing, then he would have gotten away with it forever. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what he learned, too, when he was leaving bodies out in the open on I-70 and nothing was being pinned back to him. He was like, oh, I can just do this in my home. And it is said that serial killers tend to at first try and kill away from home because it's, you know, they don't want to get caught. But then once they get comfortable, they start bringing their work home with them. Well, it's literally just the one guy who cared and got the whole thing rolling, you know? So... And the Virgil other dude who, like, fucking did his research or his investigation and almost died. Like, what if he didn't think that fast and be like, oh, I'm going to pretend that I passed yep. out? Like, yeah. wow. Yeah. Good for him. I know. And, and the woman, like, good, the woman. Yes, who actually cared. Who actually Mary, cared. Mary Wilson and yeah. Virgil Vandegriff, I think. If it are... wasn't for them, like, that's it. Yep. Wow. And he's such a cat. Like he knows that he did wrong because he ran away from can- to Canada and killed himself. Like, right. And he did have mental illness, which could scramble that egg a bit. I just think that he knew he knew what he was doing. I definitely think he knew what he was doing. I think that he was too cowardly to own up to his actions, and he's a piece of shit. And I wish that he could have just gotten like raped in prison and stabbed a bunch and suffered i wonder i just i wonder if like the first time was maybe an ax was actually an accident maybe and then he was like oh he's like i like that yeah i wonder or it could have been that you know he was you know trying to fulfill his homosexual fantasies or whatever and didn't want the guy letting anyone else know Mm -hmm. that he was potentially gay so he shut him up Oh. It's tragic. It's fucked up. It's and horrible. Those poor, I, poor people. I wish that I wish that the actual police were as Care. good as yeah as Detective Mary Wilson and um, Virgil Vandergriff because if that were the case, then the country would be so much better. Um, but it's not. It's mostly full of people that are like. The Harris County detectives being like, I mean, oh, he's rich. Come on. He couldn't have done it. He's rich. It's like, rich. It, that, that like means anything. Yep. But I just, yeah, if they had gotten involved earlier on, like how many lives could have been saved, you mm-hmm. know, like, yeah. yeah. It's again, the less dead, according to the police or like the, what's it called? The. Yeah, the less dead, yeah. Don't care. Um, It's not happening to us, like, rich, white, straight, cis people. Doesn't matter then. Those people are scum. 
Now, it's here's disgusting. my question. Yeah? When did the mannequin collecting start? <laughs> that is and the real how, question. Like, how and when? Well, like you said, I'm sure with the thrift stores. He's getting mannequins in to, to display the stuff. And he's like, well, I just got to take... I mean, we have too many in the store. I have, like, this weird addiction to buying mannequins. We have too many in the store. I'll just store some at home. And it's like, hey, I like them at home. Like, I'm not well, so I'm wondering now. I'm wondering, too, if part of the of his fetish was dead bodies. Because he's like, oh, it's really oh. cool when, like, you know, they pass out or whatever. It's really exciting that maybe, like, mannequins are almost, like, a substitute for that. Like, they can't That's talk so and they... Gross. You know? Yeah. That's the only thing I can figure. It's so creepy. It is very creepy. Well, and it's like kind of dehumanizing people, you know, if you exactly. just have like, yeah, like non-human people around all the time. And it's just kind of like, well, what's the, like, they, their lives don't matter. So uh-huh. human lives don't really matter. They're just like all mannequins. They're all mannequins to me. I don't know if I can know. Ooh, yeah. They're all mannequins to me. Ew. <sighs> Gross. Yeah, that dude sucks. So hard. Piece of shit. Piece of shit. Uh, yeah, so that's my story. Good story. Good job. Thanks. That made sense. It was coherent. It was oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Good okay, so now we're going to do my story. Yeah, you tell it so I can sound stupid. <laughs> Guess what? What? You went Indiana, not UK. You went Indiana. Uh-huh. And I went international. Oh, is it Indiana, UK? <laughs> <laughs> it is indiana england <laughs> crazy right <laughs> okay so i got my information from wikipedia the atlantic and wired.com okay uh also i want to say we should probably add to our disclaimer because we always like well this could be like super disorganized because we're like i feel like we should just add to our disclaimer like our disclaimer don't is expect gonna be shit out of this podcast <laughs> Our disclaimer is going to be an hour long <laughs> of just being like, it wasn't us. Sorry. It might have come but out of our mouths. this is how it is. <laughs> we just read something and we're just reiterating it to you. We don't actually we're just like rereading know it to facts. You. It's like, this is like story time when you're a kid, you know, yeah. and you just sit and listen to the librarian read you a story. About murder. I remember those days yeah. of mur- yeah, those listening to days. tales of murder as a tot. As Miss Gill would read us books, books about murder. Murder books. <laughs> okay, so. Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 left Kuala Lumpur International Airport at 12.42 a.m. March 8th, 2014. Okay. Do you know the story? Maybe. I don't know. Keep going. Okay, it was headed to Beijing. Mm-hmm. The flight was supposed to be five and a half hours, basically, and the plane had enough fuel for a seven and a half hour flight. Right. The plane was a Boeing 777, Uh which is like a super safe plane. Uh Uh, Since its like introduction in 1994, there had only been six incidents with the plane, and some of them were like, you know, not caused by plane malfunctions, but someone like shot down a plane or like whatever. Mm, but yeah. only six since 1994, and this takes place in 2014. So wow, pretty that's safe. That's a pretty plane. good track record. Yeah, uh, the flight had 12 crew members and 227 passengers from 14 different nations. All the crew members were Malaysian. The pilot was Captain Zahari um, 
Ahmad Shah, and he was 43 years old mm-hmm. and from Penyang. Mm-hmm. He started flying from Malaysia Airlines in 1981 as a cadet pilot, and then he became a second officer in 1983. He was promoted to captain of a Boeing 737 in 1991 and in 1998 he became captain of a Boeing 777. Okay. So I guess you like he became captain of like all these various planes. I didn't realize you had to be promoted to captain in each plane that you're flying. I didn't realize like that each either. Each type of plane. Yeah, yes, so the con- super crazy. The controls are a little different. You have to learn them all. I guess or... so. I mean, I assume like yeah, the, guess, yeah. the size of the plane like, if you're flying a bigger plane, you're going to have to have different calculations in your controls than a smaller well, one. Well, and trying to land that shit, yeah. like, landing a small plane compared to a giant plane, I'm sure it would be very so different. So I'm sure, I'm sure the logistics are all different. So he was one of the most senior captains at Malaysia Airlines, and he was also really experienced. Mm-hmm. He was married and had three children who were adults at the time. Mm-hmm. He loved flying, and he had his own Microsoft flight simulator in his home. He would spend like hours like wow. simulating flights and so flying like, them like not all only the way was through it, to completion. Not only was it his job, it was his hobby. Yeah, that's what he would he'd like literally sit in front of this thing and like fly a whole fake flight. Wow. Crazy, right? Can you imagine sitting for like six hours just like I don't know. It's crazy. So You gotta have a real the, passion for it. <laughs> yeah. The co pilot was first officer Farik. Uh, Hamid. Mm-hmm. He was 27 and had started as a cadet pilot in 2007. In November of 2013, he began his f- training as first officer of the Boeing 777. Hmm. So um, the captain had a total of 18,365 hours of flying experience. Wow. So he's flown a lot of fucking planes. Um, and then the first officer had a total of 2,763 hours of flying experience Mm -hmm. and flight 370 was his last training flight until he was fully certified so after this flight he was going to do like um he's going to take his like flying test or whatever so that he could be uh certified for the boeing 777 wow so he was like super young to like yeah yeah okay so there were 10 flight attendants and all the passengers Five of the passengers were children, and most of them were Chinese, but some were also from India, Indonesia, Europe, Australia, the U.S., other countries. Mm-hmm. There, So basically, it was just like an international flight from everywhere. Yeah. So that night, everything was going fine. First Officer Farik flew the plane, and Captain Zahari was on the radio. Some of the captain's transmissions were kind of odd. Like, he radioed that they had arrived at an altitude when the norm was to report when you were leaving an altitude. Hmm. But, like, you know, it's fine. Uh, At 1.08 a.m., they crossed the Malaysian coastline and began flying across the South South China Sea. Uh 11 minutes later, they were in Vietnamese airspace, and the air traffic controller in Kuala Lumpur radioed and told them to contact Ho Chi Minh and and gave Zahari the frequency for that contact. Mm-hmm. And he responded, but he didn't repeat back the frequency, which was also kind of weird. But, like, okay. Huh. So, just kind of enough out of the norm to take note of. Right. Were, it was just kind of like, like, oh, uh, hmm. I mean, and he's, and he's got, you know, he's got so many hours under his belt and he's never acted yeah. like this before. Okay. Right. 
Right. Kind of weird. So he, so when you, when you change like, you know, air zones, whoever owns the air above like whatever space. So what, what happened is Kuala Lumpur, they would like transfer over and then he'd contact Ho Chi Minh and then they would take over from there. And then they had like, then the plane would appear on their radar and they would like watch him until he left their airspace. Okay. Uh, So, so that that contact where they were like, hey, check in with Ho Chi Minh was the last anyone would ever hear from Flight 370. And the pilots never checked in with Ho Chi Minh. So. And you would assume if um, if the first, what was it, the first pilot, not the pilot, the, fir- the first, officer. first officer noticed that the pilot was acting strange, they could communicate they could like take yeah. the radio and commu- make a communication. Right, they'd be able to communicate too. Uh-huh. But he was I mean I'm sure I'm everything seemed fine. Yeah. Like everything was like normal, like a little bit off, but like normal. So, planes send out a transponder signal that identifies the plane's identity and altitude. And at 121, the transponder was no longer working on flight 370. Uh-oh. And I think someone would have to like switch that off. So, just as it crossed over into Vietnamese airspace, the symbol for the transponder was no longer on the screens of Malaysian air traffic control. Like I said, it would like leave their screen and then go over to the Vietnamese yeah. screen. When the controller in Malaysia noticed that the plane was no longer visible, he figured that the plane was now in the hands of Ho Chi Minh and out of range. Yeah, so he's like, oh, they probably I contacted mean, them. I, I remember hearing the story, but I don't remember the details. Okay. So at around the same time, Vietnamese controllers saw Flight 370 cross into their airspace mm-hmm. and then disappear. Mm-mm. They tried repeatedly to contact the plane, but to no avail. They even had a pilot of another plane try to contact the flight to be like, hey, you guys need to check in. Like Ho Chi Minh's telling you, you need to check in. Yeah. But that pilot was never able to establish communication. Huh. He only heard mumbling and static. Uh-oh. After 18 minutes of trying to get in contact with the flight crew, they contacted Kuala Lumpur. For some reason, an emergency response was not triggered for four hours. What? Finally, at 6.32 a.m., the time that the plane should have landed in Beijing, Uh they started, like, trying to figure out what happened to this plane. That it just disappeared. not here. They didn't tell us anything. What's going on? Yeah. Shit. So... Now, a massive search started focused in the South China Sea, because that was the last ping that they had gotten off the trans- transponder. Mm-hmm. It was an internationally search... Oh, it was an international search involving 34 ships and 28 aircrafts. The plane was completely gone. What? After days of looking... Oh, so they, like, they looked everywhere, all across the South China Sea. They found absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. After days of this... They finally, they were, like, looking over air traffic computers, and then they started corroborating with the Malaysian Air Force, which was, like, a secret, the Malaysian Air Force had, like, this secret radar Mm -hmm. where they could, like, track flights, but they didn't want people to know that they were, like, keeping tabs on the airspace. What do you mean? We don't. Uh -uh. Yeah, so they weren't, like, helping out until finally they were, like, okay, fine, we can give you, like, the information (laughs) Oh, you mean this? We thought you were talking about something else. So, turns out, the Malaysian Air Force were able to track the flight for an hour longer than they had let on. A military radar had picked up the flight turning right, 
But then it began turning left and heading southwest. Mm. The flight flew across the Malay Peninsula, and at 1.52, the flight passed south of the island of Penyang, and then the plane flew across the Strait of Malacca and out across the Andaman Sea, and then they lost track of the flight at 2.22. What? So it starts going, like, southwest. Right. So the Malaysian Air Force knew that the plane wasn't flying over the South China Sea, that in fact it had flown like southwest. So they had spent days searching this area with all of these ships and all of these aircrafts looking for a plane, and they couldn't find it because it wasn't fucking there. So at two twenty two, no one knows where the where the plane is at this point. Yeah. So now, over five years later, the precise location of the remains have still never been found. Oh my god. Flight 370 had actually continued to link up intermittently with a geostationary Indian Ocean satellite operated by Inmarsat, a commercial vendor in London. So this commercial satellite was able to pick up pings, like random pings, and like link ups for six hours after the plane had disappeared from that secondary radar. So the plane... So they knew that the plane hadn't suddenly suffered any kind of, like, crazy event because it was still flying. And during those six hours, it is presumed to have remained in high-speed, high-altitude cruising flight. So it seems like it's just, you know, flying fine, fine. flying a flight, but in the wrong direction. It's almost as if, like, he either when he was playing his game... He, like, found a cool path. He's like, I gotta try this in real life. Now I've got a plane. I'm gonna do it. Or With he, like... 227 passengers? Right. Or he had some kind of, like, yeah. brain flip where he thought he was still in the game. Or he is yeah. crazy. Or something happened on this flight. Right. So, there were seven link-ups in all. Two initiated automatically by the airplane. And five others initiated automatically by the Inmarsat ground station. There were also two satellite phone calls that went unanswered. And I think those calls were to the first officer, and he never answered. Uh. There were also two... Oh, uh, so calculations of likely flight paths place the last link up either in Kazakhstan, Uh if the airplane had turned north, Uh or in the southern Indian Ocean, if it had turned south. And Uh. chances were that it flew south. So, they guessed that at 2.40 a.m., the plane turned to the south and then flew straight and level for a very long time, for hours, in the direction of Antarctica. What the fuck? After six hours, the plane descended steeply, like five times faster than normal. And based on the satellite, they think that within a minute or two of the last link-up, the plane dove into the ocean, possibly shredding... Like, it possibly shredded the whole plane before it hit the ocean. Because they were going so fast that everything would just, like, Yeah, and so everyone everyone in the plane's passing out because of the sudden drop in altitude. Well. (gasps) What do you mean, well? No, we'll get into that. Okay, so, judging from the electronic evidence, this was not a controlled attempt at a water landing. Uh, The airplane must have fractured instantly into a million pieces. (gasps) 
but no one knew where the impact had occurred, much less why, and no one had the slightest bit of physical evidence to confirm that the satellite interpretations were correct. So, less than a week after the disappearance, the Wall Street Journal published the first report about the satellite transmissions, indicating that the airplane had most likely stayed aloft for hours after going silent. Malaysian officials eventually admitted that the account was true. The Malaysian regime was said to be one of the most corrupt in the region, and it was also proving itself to be furtive, fearful, and unreliable in its investigation of the flight. So I mean, yeah, they're just like they have, super unhelpful. Well, they have secret satellites that they're like, yeah, that's what, we don't. They took have days them. to be like, like, no. oh yeah, and you then, should totally search over there. I bet you'll find it. Wink. Yeah, spend all those millions of dollars and then get all those families like hopes raised that we're gonna find out what happened to this plane, and then it's like days later, like mm, you guys are searching in the wrong spot. I. It's like okay. Oh my god, as someone that already has like fear of flying even though i do fly yeah you have to i, I mean. can't even i mean mm-hmm. it's not like you would know where you were going when you're a passenger anyway you wouldn't be like this isn't the right course to get here because you wouldn't fucking know but then no. it's like hours longer than the flight's supposed to be and there's no announcement yeah. from the pilot and yeah what in the hell is uh, happening? Does that look yeah. like Antarctica so almost, like, from the window? I almost, <laughs> I almost didn't want to do this because, yeah, we fly and, like, you want to think, like, that it's safe to fly, but, like, people are flying those planes and things happen on planes all the time that are, like, they do. However, not so good. statistically, you know, you're more likely yeah, to die right. in a car you're crash. That's, well, for sure, but you're, yeah. like, driving every... Anyway, okay. Anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> Back to this joyous story. So because the Malaysians withheld what they knew, the initial searches of the ocean were concentrated in the wrong place, Mm -hmm. the South China Sea, and they found no floating debris. Had the Malaysians told the truth right away, then the debris might have been found and used to identify the airplane's approximate location. The black boxes may have been recovered Mm -hmm. and like any kind of like voice recording, whatever could have been found. But that's not what happened. So of the underwater course, search because people are horrible to each other and they'd rather have yes. secret satellites than why does it care matter? For human like, life. why do we have all this separation? Like, we're all human beings. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, knock it we're off. We're all Be human. Nice. Why can't we all get along and take care of each other? Yeah, stop being assholes. So, greedy, the underwater greedy search, assholes. The underwater search for any debris or the black boxes or anything was ultimately centered around a narrow area of ocean thousands of miles away so it was kind of like i think it was something like 1200 miles off the coast of australia where they ended up searching mm-hmm. instead of the south china sea Ugh. but even that narrow area of ocean it's like so huge and unexplored yeah that it took two years to find the black boxes from Air France flight 447, which crashed into the Atlantic on a flight from Rio de Janeiro to Paris in 2009, and the searchers had known exactly where to look. And it took them two hours I mean, two years. Oh, I can't even speak. Two years to find that shit. That's insane. And this, they have like a a narrow area, but they don't know exactly where they're looking, and that, yeah. I mean, yeah, the ocean is huge. And, and, and it's so and it unexplored. Moves. And it moves. So yeah. it's not like you just drop something and it's like, oh, yeah, that's where I dropped it. It could be there one day and then somewhere else 
the next. Plus, a lot of the ocean's super uncharted. Like you yeah. don't, you don't know how deep it goes. Like Ooh, you don't, don't know like what that. kind of crevices and creatures, formations, things that want to touch your feet. <laughs> Ew! Just don't go in the ocean. Just Ugh. stop. So the initial search of the surface waters ended in April 2014 after nearly two months because they didn't find anything. Oh my! And God. then they focused on the ocean depths. Where the search like remains today on the ocean depths. So although although the Malaysians were sort of in charge of the entire investigation, they lacked the means and expertise to mount a subsea search and rescue effort, recovery effort. So the Australians took over. Mm-hmm. Uh, the areas of the Indian Ocean that the satellite data pointed to were so deep and unexplored that the first challenge was to map the undersea topography. <laughs> Yeah. Can you imagine how much work that would be? Ugh. So they had, they allowed, so they had to map it so that they can allow side scanning sonar vehicles to be safely towed miles beneath the surface. What? The ocean floor was lined with ridges in a blackness where light had never been before. So this is like, how can you tell how far down it goes if you can't even see? Dude, no. The ocean is Mm-mm. so scary. I know. Mm-mm. Like, I was scared imagining being on the plane, and now I'm scared imagining being in the ocean. <laughs> it's just all scary. <laughs> so, in March 2015, a one-year commemoration of Flight 370's disappearance was held in Kuala Lumpur by the passengers' families. The commemoration took place in an outdoor space at a shopping mall, which was typical for the area. The purpose was to give grief collective, uh, was to grieve collectively, mm-hmm. but also to maintain pressure on the government of Malaysia to provide explanations to keep like yeah. looking into what the fuck happened. We're still here. So, We're still looking for our family. Our families are gone. Like. Can you imagine your family just one day like, oh, we're just going to fly over to Beijing, like whatever. No. And then all of a sudden it's Ew, like, stop talking. We don't know what happened the to them. Where'd they go? We don't fucking know. So hundreds of people attended. Many of them were from China because most of the passengers were Chinese. Right. There was some music and in the background of a stage was a large poster that showed the silhouette of a Boeing 777, which Mm, like how creepy. Yeah. Along, Along with the picture were words like where, who, why, mm. when, whom, how, and also impossible, unprecedented, vanished, and clueless. Wow. So sad. The principal speaker was a young Malaysian woman named Grace Sabathirai Nathan, whose mother had been on the flight. Grace is a criminal defense lawyer specializing in death penalty cases, which Malaysia has a lot of them because um, their laws are, like, really intense. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure that you can get the death penalty for weed. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So she's doing a lot of cases. Yeah, shit. She's probably busy. So there she described her mother, the deep love she felt for her, and oh. the difficulty of enduring her disappearance. Because what the fuck happened? Yeah. Then... On July 29th, 2015, on a French island, I will not say it, a piece <laughs> of airfoil about six feet long washed up mm. on the shore. It was determined to be part of the Boeing of a Boeing 777, oh, and they shit. checked the serial number, and it was determined to belong to Flight 370. Oh, shit. Which, okay, the name of the French island looks like it would be Reunion, which is kind of like... You gotta say... Isn't that lovely? Whoa, whoa. 
Very good. Yes, Thank it sounded you. good. But it's not like lovely. They were like reunited with a bit of the plane. Oh. Anyway. And, I mean, it's tragic, but at least they're getting some kind of answers. So after that, a man named Blaine Gibson, he like focused, he was already kind of looking around for the debris from the plane, mm-hmm. but he like really focused in at this point. And after consulting experts on the currents in the Indian Ocean, he found out that the most likely place for debris to wash ashore was Madagascar and Mozambique. Hmm. So most likely it was Madagascar, but Gibson had never been to Mozambique before. And so he was, he was like, like I would those. love to go check out Mozambique. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's one of those who's trying to like get to every country uh. before he dies. And he's like, well, I've never been there, so I'm going to go there first. Uh-huh. <laughs> so there he got advice from local fishermen and they directed him to Paluma, which is a sandbank. Mm-hmm. And there he found part of a plane. <gasps> it was a part of a horizontal stabilizer panel. And it was found to be from Flight 370. Oh, my God. In June 2016, Gibson went to Madagascar, and then he found lots of little pieces. He's responsible for finding about a third of the plane. Holy shit. And he would, like, always send them... He would always send them back to be like, here's more of the plane. Uh So there were a total of three investigations into the disappearance of Flight 370, The first was by Australians doing underwater search, trying to find debris, flight data, and cockpit voice recorders. Mm -hmm. They spent over three years and $160 million to find nothing. And then they passed it off to, like, a United States team, which I don't think they found anything either. So, super pointless. The second was by Malaysian police. Well, I'm not going to say pointless, but kind of fruitless is the word I was looking for. Uh, The Malaysian police did background checks on everyone on the plane and even some of their friends, but the investigation was very secretive and super censored and steered clear of anything that might reflect negatively on Malaysian airlines or the government at all. So, not really helpful. Well, yeah, they're like, well, fuck, we can't have people stop riding Malaysian airlines because they're afraid that we just are going to, you know. You're going to go missing. We don't want anything to look bad. Yeah. So we're going to pretend that, like, it didn't even happen. Like, okay. Yeah. The, the third was also conducted by Malaysians to find probable cause for the accident. But this investigation was basically useless. Like, they had people coming in to try and help from outside of Malaysia. And mm. they were like, you're not, you're obviously, you don't care. Like, you're not trying to actually solve this thing. You're, like, wasting time. Wow. So from the beginning, it was, like, really clear that the Malaysians were just trying to make the whole thing go away. Because they were afraid of what might be found. They didn't know why the plane disappeared, but right. they were kind of like, we're better off not knowing why. Well, yeah, because they don't want to... poorly on us. Right. They don't want to dirty their name. It's like, well, yeah, if right. they... But it's like 227 passengers plus 12 flight crew members all disappear, and you're just like, oh, we don't want to give ourselves a bad name. It's like, no, give families answers. Like, that pe- But people what? in power uh, don't care about... The little people. They're all mannequins to them. Yes. It doesn't matter. It might as well be a plane full of packages and mannequins. (laughs) Packaged up mannequins. Here are some of the conspiracies as to what happened. Because as soon as this plane disappeared, everyone's like, what the fuck? Oh, I remember. All kinds of conspiracies. I remember when that happened and one. I remember hearing a conspiracy that someone hijacked the plane and then they landed it somewhere in the middle east or something and then they were all being taken cat like uh hostage 
and yeah that was one of the yeah for sure sorry i didn't want to ruin your story no no that was one of them one of them one of them was that it's in pakistan uh rupert murdoch hypothesized that the plane's disappearance was part of a jihadist plot to make trouble for china right and that the flight could have landed in northern pakistan like bin laden whatever that fucking means i don't you know how he's always land been landing there (laughs) yeah just like bin laden landing flights in pakistan (laughs) others said that the plane could have been outfitted with explosives or even a nuclear weapon for future delivery as if a big slow plane was like the best tool to do that but anyway so that was one of them yeah you're right well i kind of remember in and i don't know if you're gonna say this but one of the rumors based on that like oh they landed in pakistan and then someone put a video online that was like a black dot like you couldn't see anything but you could hear people talking and it was like um basically saying like oh we're trapped and like we're trying to fit we don't know where we are we landed here and we're trapped with people and so people thought that they were being held captive Mm-hmm. in Pakistan and yeah no I didn't read that part of it oh mm. so another conspiracy is um, the cockpit fire conspiracy that a mm. fire in the cockpit led to the captain led the captain to turn west towards Puala Palau uh-huh. you'll try that Lang- but you won't try Yuyong. <laughs> Which was a nearby airstrip. Uh, then they lost communication with the cockpit because maybe like an electrical fire happened, and the need for the crew was to focus on flying the plane rather than like, you know, radioing a distress call and being like, we need help. And the pilots could have also passed out or succumbed to smoke inhalation with mm. the plane flying for hours until it ran out of fuel and crashed, which is a good thing. Theory, except for there isn't any solid evidence to support it. Except for why wouldn't, instead of the guy being like saying things weird, why wouldn't he be like, oh, we've got a fire in the cockpit. We need to land immediately. Well, they're saying like it happened maybe after. And then he's like trying to get to the nearest strip, airstrip, and then didn't, you know, you don't radio in because you're just like, we got to fly this fucking thing before we all. But how do you even fly it in the cockpit if it's on fire? (laughs) Well, then you're like passed out from smoke. I don't know. Hmm. Uh, well, yeah, but then they, but then it flies for like fucking six hours. We could put it on autopilot. Like on fire? <laughs> yeah, on I fire. Don't, uh, yeah. I, don't know. I don't know how planes work, but I don't think that's how they do it. <laughs> so another conspiracy said that Russian special ops took it. Mm. An article in New York Magazine hypothesized that nefarious actors could have broken mm. into the electronics and equipment bay on the 777 access through the first class cabin. A well-trained hijacker could theoretically have started pulling the plane's electronics what? apart and fake some of the satellite data that researchers have used to pinpoint the path of the flight. Uh, that sounds a little uh, out there. Right, and they also said that the door to the to the pilot area mm-hmm. that had like this really um, what's the word? like defined clicking sound that they would have heard they would have heard if someone was trying to break in it had like this really reinforced door and like this clicking so they would have like so um someone else claimed that the plane must have gone north into asia rather than south over the indian ocean and into kazakhstan where there are runways and buildings large enough to hide a boeing 777 Mm. and i mean 
there's like that doesn't prove like they never yeah, found why? it so. yeah. or the people or whatever yeah then there's the faked flight plan so someone on board hijacked the plane and kept its location concealed by faking a flight plan from an uncontrolled airport then the pilots could pretend to be a small business jet and proceed (laughs) to some hidden airfield somewhere with no one the wiser except for the fact that it's tricky to hide a boeing 77 and several hundred passengers and crew and Um, like yeah that doesn't sound plausible either not at all another one is that the u.s military shot it down Mm-hmm. So the atoll of Diego Garcia, complete with U.S. military base, is located in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Mm-hmm. So one theory suggests that the plane was held there on some sort of kamikaze mission, and huh. or was headed there, and oh, it was okay. secretly shot down by the U.S. military before it could reach its target. And then the Americans would have faked the satellite data and scooped up every last bit of debris to keep the fate of the plane and passenger secret. Uh-huh. But why would they shoot down a plane to kill that many people to prevent it from, you know, like there are other ways to get control of a plane, I would think. Well, I mean, unless, I, I mean, unless it's like coming right at you and your only thing to do to protect all the other people on the island is to shoot it down not saying it's right but i'm saying i think after 9-11 they're a lot more defensive about planes flying at things i just don't think that they'd shoot down a plane though i think they definitely would with all those passengers like all the innocent crew members and passengers if they think that that plane is going to be a bomb that comes at them and they're you know they're they're perceiving a terrorist attack of course they'll shoot it down Oh, I don't want to think about that. <laughs> so another conspiracy is supernatural forces were at work. Uh-huh. So this one says, thanks to Reddit for uh-huh. theories that the plane could have been snatched out of the sky by aliens oh. or a wormhole that uh-huh. sent it back in time. <gasps> Whoa. Or maybe a black hole ate up the plane, like a black hole in the sky. Like when you know there's a black hole here. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. So there's an Australian, I think this is the, or maybe that's a different one, um, who has been claiming for several years to have found the 370 by looking on Google Earth in shallow waters and still intact, but he has refused to disclose the location while he works on crowdfunding an expedition. Oh my God. So so, uh, there are also stories on, yeah, for sure. There are also stories online that you can find that claim Mm -hmm. the airplane has been found intact in the Cambodian jungle, that it was seen landing in an Indonesian river, or that it flew into a time warp. (laughs) (laughs) So all good theories. Um, Here's another conspiracy theory. If it landed, then the people would be like, "Uh, I want to go home and try and get Can you imagine that it goes back in time in a time warp? (laughs) And they're like, what the fuck? Plausible. Where are we? (laughs) And they're like, what the fuck is that big (laughs) bird from the sky? Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So another theory is passenger involvement. So two men Mm. boarded flight 370 with stolen passports, which raised suspicion after the immediate aftermath of its disappearance. Yeah. The passports, one was Australian and one was Italian, had been reported stolen in Thailand within the preceding two years. Mm. Interpol stated that both passports were listed on the stolen and lost travel documents database and that no one checked to make sure. 
so the two bought one-way tickets. They got them from China Southern Airlines. Mm-hmm. And it was reported that an Iranian had ordered the cheapest tickets to Europe via telephone in Bangkok, Thailand, and paid cash. Hmm. So the two passengers were later identified as Iranian men, one 19 and the other 29, who had entered Malaysia on February 28th using their valid passports. Uh. And then they got fake passports to travel to Europe. But it they were probably asylum seekers. That's what I'm thinking. So they're probably just like, yeah, trying they're to get. They're leaving Malaysia. Uh, they probably are trying to get out of. They're trying to get bad. safely to Europe. Yeah. Right. And at so that young, the, I don't know. Yeah, the Secretary General of Interpol stated that the organization was inclined to conclude that it was not a terrorist incident. It sounded like they were just trying to get to safety. Yeah. So, U.S. and Malaysian officials reviewed the backgrounds of every passenger. Remember. Uh huh. So on March 18th, the Chinese government announced that he had, it had checked all of the Chinese citizens on the aircraft and ruled out the possibility that any were involved in destruction or terror attacks. Mm-hmm. One passenger who worked as a flight engineer for a Swiss jet charter company was briefly under suspicion as a potential hijacker because he was a pilot, so <sighs> or a flight engineer, so he would have had like flying so he skills, knew how to but fly there were like the plane into the ocean. Seems yeah, like so any idiot like, could do that. Probably not. So the issues with like hijackers, like I said before, the cockpit door was fortified, electrically bolted, and surveilled by a video feed that the pilots could see. So they can right. see if someone's approaching the door. So you would assume if they saw that and they would they would call it in to like some right. air traffic controller being like Well when it's bolted, they're not gonna unlock the door, you know, no, the cabin but they door. Would, they wouldn't just not say anything. Right. Right. They'd be like, we need to make an emergency landing. Mm-hmm. Shit's going down. Yeah, like have, so have also, whatever law enforcement at the airport when we land because we've got terrorists right. on the plane or something. Right. <laughs> or, hi- yeah, hijackers, whatever. So uh, also less than two minutes had passed between Zahari's casual, like, good night to uh-huh. Kuala Lumpur and the start of the diversion. So who's going to get in there and change that shit within two minutes? You know, you have to right. get through the door. You have to, like, fight the pilots. They're not going to say anything. Like, it's not going to happen. Uh. And then also, like, how would the hijackers know when they had moved into Vietnamese airspace to, like, go in that precise moment to be like, this is the time. You know, they wouldn't have known. So Right. And also, what was the goal of hijacking them to drive the one plane into the ocean? Like, who are they targeting? Right. right. And... Yeah. So the other thing is yeah. that both of the control yokes had transmitter switches within within their like reach, finger reach. So some signal could have been sent yeah. in the moments before an attempted takeover. Furthermore, every one of the passengers and cabin crew members had been investigated and cleared of suspicion by teams of Malaysian and Chinese investigators aided by the FBI. Hmm. So this this next theory is kind of weird. I don't really understand part of it, but uh-huh. so there's a there's a conspiracy theory that the cargo had something to do with it. So flight 370 was carrying 23,823 pounds of cargo. That's a lot of bags. <laughs> including 10,066 pounds of mangosteens, which is a fruit. Okay. And 487 pounds of lithium ion batteries. Oh, yeah. Which the the Malaysian investigators were like these two things are 
suspicious. I don't understand why the mango scenes are so su- suspicious. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I guess the lithium ion batteries, like if right. those are those are worth a lot of money if you could get it. Well, also they're like, highly flammable, right? They're like right. dangerous. Sure. So the you know, whenever you were... rub mango scenes and lithium ion batteries I together, don't understand. <laughs> uh, you break out in a fire. I mean, were they like trying to steal the mango scenes cuz they had like a good market somewhere? <laughs> Maybe they just thought it was suspicious that they were there. So they like, well, they questioned the in the Chinese importers of the mangosteens <laughs> to rule out sabotage. What are you really doing like, with those mangosteens? Yeah, like what the fuck? We don't want to pay for this transport, so we're just gonna like murder everyone. Huh. I don't know, but the lithium-ion batteries—they're they can cause really intense fires if yeah. they overheat and ignite, which that's why they have like really strict regulations when you're transporting them on an airplane, which I want to know if an airplane I'm flying on is transporting batteries, because that's like, no thank you. (laughs) I'll take the next flight, thanks. Yeah, so a fire fueled by lithium-ion batteries caused the crash of UPS Airlines Flight 6, and they're suspected to have caused a fire which resulted in the crash of Asiana Airlines Flight 991. (sighs) Both were cargo planes, Yeah, but... So some airlines have stopped carrying bulk shipments of lithium um, yes, ion batteries on passenger your, aircraft. Please put them on your UPS shipment. Like what? I'm not no. But just some of them have stopped on the passenger aircraft. Like, uh no thank you. You can get like one battery each flight. Like that's how we need to do that. <laughs> so So the they're theorizing final... that, that would that they would just catch on fire and take the plane down. Yeah, if it if they got overheated and ignited, then it could have. But then why but then, the turn? Plus, isn't and it usually why the flying for six hours? And it, isn't it usually colder in the storage area than? I mean, it did cause the the two planes right, to crash. Right. Like, so I don't know, but I don't. Wow. I don't know, but like, did they catch wind of it all in the, within those two minutes and then turn the plane and? Or they were like, crap, there's a fire. We need to do something about it. We'll just put the plane on autopilot. But then something fell off of a shelf and started leaning the steering wheel. Well, the plane, so the plane is started... an autopilot. The plane's always in autopilot when you're flying. Mm. So someone took it out of autopilot to make that turn. Right. So we'll get into that. So crew, the last uh, conspiracy theory that I'm going to talk about is crew involvement. Uh-huh. So U.S. officials believe the most likely explanation is that someone in the cockpit of Flight 370 reprogrammed the aircraft's autopilot to travel south across the Indian Ocean. Uh-huh. Police searched the homes of the two pilots and seized financial records uh, for all 12 crew members, including bank statements, credit card bills, and mortgage documents. On April 2nd, 2014, Malaysian Police Inspector General said that more than 170 interviews had been conducted as part of Malaysia's criminal investigation, including interviews with family members of the pilots and crew. Hmm. The United States FBI reconstructed the deleted data from Captain Zahari's home flight simulator, but Uh a Malaysian government spokesman indicated that nothing sinister had been found on it, and the preliminary report issued by Malaysia in March of 2015 stated that there was no evidence of recent or imminent significant financial transactions carried out by any of the pilots or crew, and that analysis of the behavior of the pilots on CCTV showed no significant behavioral changes. And these these guys had had like a number of years and hours of flying on under their belt, so yeah. it's not like, 
they were new to this like it was just no. routine gonna okay i gotta go fly to the flight today just seemed very casual the only right, weird thing like was the only weird thing was just that he didn't say a couple of the right phrases that they Right, he did kind of weird things. So in 2018, the sister of the pilot said that the safety investigation report on MH370 showed nothing negative about the pilot flying the plane. But then you have to kind of take what the Malaysian government says with a grain of salt because they're not trying to like solve this thing. You right, know? they've so been they're like, we did invest- we investigated and it was like fine. Mm-hmm. So what happened to this plane? What happened? Chances are that the disappearance was an intentional act. Nothing can explain the flight path except for someone intentionally flying that plane. Right. Control of the plane was not seized remotely. It was seized from inside the cockpit in the time between 1.01 and 1.21 a.m. But the automatic transmission reported that the plane was functioning at that time. Hmm. So clearly, like, everything was going fine. Someone took control over that plane, and that person had to be in the cockpit at the time. By the time the plane's transponder stopped working, it's most likely that one of the pilots was incapacitated somehow, and whoever was flying the plane switched off the autopilot because the turn towards the southwest was so tight that someone had to do it by hand. And whoever was flying the plane depressurized the airplane and the electrical system was deliberately shut down. So everyone passed out. What the right. hell is so, happening? Okay. A, an electrical engineer in Boulder, Colorado named Mike Exner had studied the radar data extensively. He believes that during the turn, the airplane climbed up to 40,000 feet, which was close to its limit. During the maneuver, the passengers would have experienced some G-forces mm-hmm. that feeling of being suddenly pressed back into the seat. So Exner believes that the reason for the climb was to accelerate the effects of depressurizing the airplane, causing the rapid incapacitation and death of everyone in the cabin. Yeah, that's what it sounded like to me as an expert. An (laughs) An intentional depressurization would have been an obvious way to subdue a potentially unruly cabin in an airplane that was going to remain in flight for hours to come. Mm-hmm. In the cabin, the effects would have gone unnoticed, but for some sudden appearance of the drop-down oxygen masks and perhaps the cabin's crew's use of the few portable units of similar design. So none of those cabin masks was intended for more than about 15 minutes of use during emergency descents to altitudes below 13,000 feet. Shit. And they would have been of no value at all cruising at 40,000 feet. So, they, yeah, they would have just been knocked out. Did you know that? They're only about they're only good for about 15 minutes of, like, air? Well, I mean, I always thought it was just supposed to knock you out. Right. It's supposed to make you, like, calm and shit. But yeah. f- only for 15 minutes? It's not enough. Well, because, I mean, assu- so, assuming that it wouldn't take... You know, it would probably it would take less than fifteen minutes to drop down to the altitude you're trying to drop down to, and then you yeah. wouldn't need it anymore. I guess so. We'd still be like freaking the fuck out. No, the oxygen would make you calm. Right until it stops working. Well, you would be at the altitude that you need to then, before then it stops it's like, working. It's all good. We just dropped for a bit. It's fine, everyone. Yeah, we just had to cl- yeah. climb down some altitude. <laughs> climb down some altitude. <laughs> <laughs> Couple rungs. 
So the cabin occupants would have become incapacitated within a couple of minutes, Mm -hmm. lost consciousness, and gently died without any choking or gasping for air. That's the nicest way if you're planning on hijacking a plane and killing everyone. (laughs) The scene would have been dimly lit by the emergency lights with the dead belted in their seats, their faces nestled in the worthless oxygen mask dangling on tubes from the ceiling. Now, isn't that an eerie thought? This whole thing is an eerie thought. (laughs) I know. The cockpit, by contrast, was equipped with four pressurized oxygen masks linked to hours of supply. So whoever depressurized the airplane would have simply had to put one on, and then the airplane would have been just, like, moving fast, and it's like, whatever. Yeah, but they could have survived. Yeah. So according to a former official, before the accident report was released last summer, Malaysian Air Force officers demanded to review and edit it. In the section called Malaysian Military Radar, the report provides a timeline suggesting that the air defense radar had been actively monitored, that the military was well aware of the identity of the aircraft, and that it was purposefully did not pursue to intercept the aircraft since it was friendly and did not pose any threat to national airspace security, integrity, or sovereignty. Excuse so, me? So, <laughs> the Malaysian Air Force knew that the plane was, like, uh, off course, but they were like, well, we're not going to do anything to it. They're like, it's fine. It's not pointed towards us. Right. So, like, during that time, they could have gone up They could have seen who was flying the plane. They could have seen, like, in the windows if anyone's, like, alive. They could have seen what the fuck was happening, you know? And then they would have had some answers as opposed to just, like, well, it's a friendly plane. We don't need to, like, go research it or fly or waste time and money, like, flying up there to see what the fuck's going on and why they're not on course. Well, it just drives home that every government is corrupt and we're all fucked. (laughs) Uh, yeah. So this is the, this is the flight path that this plane took. Mm Mm-hmm. At 1.37 a.m., the Flight 370's regularly scheduled 30-minute automatic condition reporting system failed to transmit. We now know that the system had been isolated from any isolate satellite transmission, something easily done within the cockpit, and therefore could not send out any of its scheduled reports. So someone in the cockpit switched that off. Hmm. They're no longer transmitting their location at all it's frustrating because it's like well it's one of two guys <laughs> right which one well and it? if it hadn't have been for that like commercial whatever in the middle of the ocean like no one would have known that like that's where it went and that's where it possibly ended up right we would have no idea oh my God. so at 1 a.m half an hour into the diversion the flight passed just south of Pinyang Island, mm-hmm. made a wide right turn, and headed northwest up the Strait of Malacca. As the plane turned, the first officer's cell phone registered with a tower below. So hmm. remember, someone called, and he didn't answer. Yeah. All through the Strait of Malacca, the airplane continued to be flown by hand, and it is presumed that everyone in the cabin was dead at this point. At 2.22 a.m., the Malaysian Air Force radar picked up the last blip, and the airplane was 230 miles northwest of Pinyang, heading northwest into the Andaman Sea and flying fast. Three minutes later, at 2.25, the airplane's satellite box suddenly returned to life, 
So it's likely that this occurred when the full electrical system was brought back up and the airplane was repressurized at the same time. Hmm. It was now most likely flying on autopilot, cruising south into the night. So someone turned off all the shit, depressurized the plane, then got it back on track and repressurized it and put all the electricity back on. I mean... (sighs) So someone is flying this creepy plane with all these dead people in it 227 well for plus hours 10, after these people, people are dead mhm people for hours i'm trying to think of motive and right so the first captain was a 27 year old he was like doing really well in his career right. he was like engaged he was about to get his license for the to fly yeah. this plane so chances are it probably wasn't him and because he was like he was like a really calm dude and he was like trying to like do really well so he could pass his test and then the the captain was the one who's like training him so if the captain was like hey can you go get this thing real quick he would have gotten up and gotten it you know and then the captain could have like locked him out right like the so, only thing i can think of to try and point it towards him is if he somehow knew he wasn't going to pass his test or if the pilot was like, well, you're not passing, you know, because this, this was his last flight before he was going to get to be a pilot that like he would well, no, be but like, he was well, already a pilot. He was already a pilot of other planes. I right. Think. This was just like the okay. next promotion. I mean, I don't but think promote like if I don't think it was him, but I'm just I'm just trying you know. to play devil's advocate. But, you right. know. It just, yeah. But it doesn't, especially if the the main captain, flying was his hobby too. So, yeah. of, of course he would be able to switch that particular plane off autopilot and be able to pilot it. When right. this guy is like still learning all the nuances and stuff and just about to get his like sign off on it. So let's look in, just like look into it a little more. So in 19... 19- we're going to look into the captain a bit. Okay. In 1997, a captain working for a Singaporean airline called Silk Air is believed to have disabled the black boxes of a Boeing 737 and to have plunged the airplane at supersonic speed into the river. What? In 1999, Egypt Air Flight 990 was deliberately crashed into the sea by its co-pilot off the coast of Long Island, resulting in the loss of everyone on board. What the fuck? So this is like a phenomenon. This is like in a thing two- that happens. This is a fucking thing that happens. In 2013, just months before Flight 370 disappeared, the captain of Lamb Mozambique Airlines Flight 470 flew his Embraer E E-19- one ninety twin jet from cruising altitude into the ground, killing all 27 passengers and all six crew members. What is this like? This is something that fucking is, happens. Is, is this um, one of those things where you're, you're a pilot on long flights and maybe you don't get a lot of time in between and you're like exhausted and you're just not thinking right? No, this is like deliberate. This is like murder suicide situation. These are deliberate. So, so from now on, in, I'm gonna like ask whenever I get on a plane if the pilot has yeah, had are you any, mentally well? Has had any are you okay? <laughs> um, Anything you want to tell us? Are you feeling depressed at all? Yeah. Like, you need to know these things. Are you suicidal? Shit. What's happening? Yeah. So, in, on March 24th, 2015, this is after the f- flight 370 disappeared, um, the German wings Airbus 
They are thinking that this plane was deliberately crashed into the French Alps, causing the loss of everyone on board. Its co-pilot, Andreas Lubitz, had waited for the pilot to use the bathroom and then locked him out. Then Lubitz had a record of depression and, as investigations later discovered, had made study of the um, Flight 370's disappearance one year earlier. So they're thinking he, like, kind of looked into that and then decided that he was going to do, like, a murder-suicide kind of a it's thing. Like, what a perfect way to commit suicide with, like, the thing I yeah, love doing most murder hundreds of people. flying and you get to fly out into like, the Like, why wouldn't you just steal a plane that's empty and then, you know, yeah. kill yourself? I don't know. So in the case of flight Malaysian Flight 370... Like I said, it's hard to see the co-pilot as the perpetrator, right? He was young. Mm-hmm. He was, like, into his career. He was planning on getting married. He had no history of any kind of trouble, any any issues at all. Mm-hmm. But the captain, Zahari, he's a different story. So the official account of Zahari as the pilot in command, mm-hmm. or the PIC, had mm. this to say. <laughs> the PIC's ability to handle stress at work was reported to be good, There was no known history of apathy, anxiety, or irritability. Mm. There were no significant changes in his lifestyle, interpersonal conflict, or family stresses. There were no behavioral signs of social isolation, change of habits, or interest. On studying the PIC's behavioral pattern on the CCTV at the airport on the day of the flight and the prior three flights, there was no significant behavioral changes observed. On all the CCTV recordings, the appearance was similar, i.e. well-groomed and attired. The gait, posture, facial expression, and mannerisms were his normal characteristics. Mm-hmm. So the official report says he's like a family man. He's like good. Nothing out of the ordinary. But Zahari was actually often lonely and sad. His yeah. wife had moved out. And was living, they had, so he and his wife had two homes, Mm -hmm. and she was living in the second home, Mm. and he was living in the other one. And by his own admission to friends, he spent a lot of time pacing empty rooms, waiting for the days between flights to go by. And, I mean, I'm going to say, like, about the, his mannerism and stuff being quote-unquote normal, it's like, when you're depressed, or you have depression, you learn... To you can not, hide it yeah, so to well. not exude yeah. it. You just play like, oh, this is okay. It's me, Captain Pilot, Captain Man. I'm this yeah, guy. Yeah, a lot of times, like the happiest person in the room or the funniest person in the room is like the most depressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so he was also a romantic. He is known to have established a wistful relationship with a married woman and her mm. three children, one of whom was disabled. Mm-mm. And he was known to have been obsessed with over two young internet models Uh-oh. whom he encountered on social media and for whom he left Facebook comments that apparently did not elicit responses. <laughs> oh, Some, God. I know, some were shyly sexual. He mentioned, and this is funny, he mentioned in one comment, for example, that one of the girls who was wearing a robe in a posed photo looked like she had just emerged from a shower. <gasps> naughty, naughty. Oh. <laughs> oh, man. And then, like, of course they're not responding because they're like, this creep, weird dude. And then he's yeah. like, they don't like me. Of course they don't like me. My wife doesn't like me. Why would they yeah. like me? Yeah. So... He 
he seems to have become disconnected from his family and his well-established life. Mm -hmm. He was in touch with his children, but they are grown and out of the house. So the detachment and solitude that can accompany using social media. Yeah. And he used social media a lot, probably just like fed his depression and his like disconnect from everything. It'll do that. It's a depressing place to be in social media. Um, and I didn't, I don't think I included this, but I think I'm pretty sure. So he had like that relationship with a married woman and I think he had like an, at least one affair with like a flight attendant, I think. And then one of the other pilots who was like a friend of his was like, yeah, well we all do. Like, what do you like? It's like, yeah. what? Hello, but anyway, he's like, I guess pilot, his wife. You make a lot of money. You fly around the world. You stop off in different countries for a night or two. Of course. No. Anyway. <laughs> His wife found out, and I think that's why she moved out. Of course. And he was, like, really upset. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure I read that. I'm sure it had something to do with it. So there's also strong suspicion that he was clinically depressed, which if he's pacing his home and spending all his time on Facebook, yeah, you're going to be fucking depressed. He's either on Facebook or he's flying in his toy or he's flying in real life. Yeah. Yeah. Just, like, really sad life. lonely. Yeah. Super lonely. So forensic examinations of his flight simulator by the FBI revealed that he experimented with a flight profile roughly matching that of the MH370. Mm. A flight north around Indonesia followed by a long run to the south ending in fuel exhaustion over the Indian Ocean. Mm. Malaysian investigators dismissed this flight profile as merely one of several hundred in that simulator. Uh, But... Of all the profiles extracted from the simulator, the one that matched um, Flight 370's path was the only one that he didn't run as a continuous flight. So in other words, taking off on the simulator and letting it fly the plane out hour Mm -hmm. after hour until it reached the destination airport, Uh instead, he kept advancing the flight manually in multiple stages, repeatedly Uh jumping the flight forward and subtracting the fuel as necessary until it was all gone. So he's just calculating out yeah. how far can I get that, before it runs out. Yeah. That was the only one he did that for. And the Which thing is... Which is what I'm saying. You're flying these flights continuously for, like, fucking hours. Like, whoa. Right. So he... It was, like, second nature to him. And then uh, if he had it in his mind, I'm going to climb the altitude so everyone passes out, and he doesn't yeah. say anything to... Kills him. ...the first pilot so or the everyone. first captain or whatever. Right. He, first officer. First officer. He could be like, just real quick, do it. Put everyone, or like including they said, the first officer, he, out. Like they said, because he was the he was like the teacher. Yeah. If he had said, "Hey, can you just like jump out of the cockpit real quick and grab this thing or do this one thing oh, or whatever?" Yeah. He could have locked him out of it, done the whole thing, and then killed everyone within like you know which like a really wh- short amount of time. Which is why he didn't answer his phone when it rang. Yeah, he was probably dead at the uh-huh. time. Yeah. So, it's not clear if Zahari would have been alive when the plane dove into the ocean, but if simply left alone, the plane would not have dove quite as uh, radically as Mm. the satellite suggests that it did. Well, and it seemed like in the other suicide stories you were saying that they dove rapidly into whatever they were trying to hit. Yeah. So it seems like someone was at the controls in the end, actively crashing the plane. Mm-hmm. Or like helping it along. 
Either way, somewhere along the last satellite link-up, after the engines failed from lack of fuel, the airplane entered a vicious spiral dive with descent rates that ultimately may have exceeded 15,000 feet a minute. Holy shit, that's fast. From that rate, the airplane would have disintegrated into confetti when it hit the water. Oh my god. For now on, official investigations have petered out. And that's the story of Flight 370. Well, Malaysian um, Airlines Flight 370. Let's bring Never it back flying to, again? Let, let's bring it back to me, because the Here's me the show. Uh, now I'm not going on planes anymore. Not because there's a pandemic well, the and we're not allowed to fly anywhere because nobody wants right. Americans, but I'm not going <laughs> Right, so here, here's the thing. I was like, I don't know about doing this because, you know, that's super scary to think. You know, like, you know your pilots are human beings with, mm-hmm. like, their own issues. But yes. you don't think that they would take that opportunity to, like, murder a bunch of people and kill themselves. But apparently it's happened more than a couple of times. So that's, like, terrifying. But then I thought, we can't fucking fly anyway, so mm-hmm. I might as well just do this one now <laughs> while we can't fly. And then by the time we can fly, like, five years from now, we'll have either forgotten about it or... or just accepted maybe it. Maybe we'll be, like, fucking rich and fly in our own planes. But honestly, I mean, if you have to die in a plane crash, at least he killed them with just, like, you know, a quick, a quick way and then... Uh, well, you know that thing, like, when you're driving in the car and you're kind of like, well, I could just, like, crash into this thing right now. You know, like, that fleeting thought the, uh, that I think a lot called? of people intrusive get. Intrusive thoughts, yes. Yeah, like, an intrusive thought. Do you think pilots get that? Where they're like, I could just, like, fucking... Sure, why not? Crash this thing into the ocean right a, fucking now. I think it's just a human thing to uh, have in your Except mind. for some of them are acting on it or, like, planning to do that. Like, he planned this. If he actually did it, which I think the most likely story is he fucking did it. Yeah, that sounds right. It sounds like he planned it out and he like thought about it and he knew what he was going to do that day. That's why his transmissions or whatever were like fucking weird. Gosh. Because he's kind of like, oh, I don't really care what we're doing. Sure, if, we're at this flight. If, yeah, only, okay. if only mental health were taken seriously around the world, maybe some of this yeah. stuff could be prevented. Yeah. Like maybe he could have taken some time off of, I mean, I know flying was like his life, but like see a therapist. Yes. Like get some help. Like, yeah tell your kids that you're feeling lonely maybe they can like spend time with you or Mm -hmm. i don't know like anything if it wasn't yeah don't murder people weren't felt 237 people and five children like what the fuck yeah because of the stigma of mental health and asking for help (laughs) well and it's not like you would get it because most places don't have the the resources to offer mental help so even if you ask for it you're not going to get it so and if you're going through a mental health crisis, please stay off social media. I mean, do it anyway, but that shit's toxic and it's like so depressing oh, on its own. Yeah. And don't reach out to anyone on there because they're just, you know, people you don't know. They're going to ignore you and make you feel worse. Yep. Social media is probably one of the worst things to happen to society. <laughs> mental health wise, yeah. yes. Yeah. And otherwise, yes, yeah. for sure. Like misinformation and all that. So mm-hmm. please take care of yourselves. Take care of your mental health. Stay off social media. But if he did it, what do you think? Toss salad, scramble. The toss salad and the scrambled egg. I I don't think either. I think he just had a mental breakdown. I think if he was that depressed and in a cycle of depression, and especially with the circumstances that were happening in his life, I think he had a mental breakdown. And it was in his mind he was going to commit suicide and why not kill yourself doing something you love? 
Well, and he like killed everyone, and like you know, they like went gently. They didn't. Right. He wasn't trying to make everyone suffer. Anything. Yeah, they just. Uh, I mean, it's horrible. So it's horrible. It's horrible. And it's so wrong to to make that decision for everyone. If you're gonna make that yes. decision for yourself, just do it yourself, not everyone. Yeah. But don't include everyone else. I really, yeah, I think I don't think he was a tossed salad or a scrambled egg. I think he was just regular person with mental health problems that needed help. He was just, like, so depressed. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yikes. I mean, yeah, when you're in that hole, it's like nothing seems real, but, like, it's fucking real. Yeah. Yeah. He just, like, ended all the... Oh. Yeah. Anyway. Well, tragic. shoot. That's depressing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I don't know why every I week know. we think... Maybe we'll find that's something gonna be more lighthearted. Yeah. Like, oh, I should pick a lighthearted <laughs> murder. Like, that doesn't exist. <laughs> no. No, no. Okay. Well, no. Well, lighthearted, crime any sake. And now for the portion that we like to call crime any sakes, where we tell you silly stories about crime that make you forget the terrible things we just told you. Let's do some crime any sakes. I have another one from WTFFlorida.com. All right, Florida. A 17-year-old Florida girl has been charged with criminal solicitation for murder after deputies <gasps> after deputies say she paid two different individuals to have her parents killed. Ooh, what? A, a school resource officer of the Lake County Sheriff's Office was con- contacted by a juvenile witness who said that the defendant had given her friend a lot of money to find someone to kill her parents. What? The investigation revealed that the defendant had stolen her parents' debit card and made two, oh my God. two separate oh my transactions, God. <laughs> one for $503 and the other for $926.40. Okay, first of all, that's not enough money. <laughs> Second of all, she's using their money to pay someone to kill them. Well, what's she? where's she going to get her money from? Bitch. <laughs> so the Umatilla Police Department handled the arrest for the theft case. What theft case? I don't know. She stole the debit card. Ah, thank you. It was later revealed that most of that money went to two different people as payment for them to have her parents executed. Which, so like you said, not enough money. <laughs> no, and then it's, if the one finds out that the other one got 900 oh. he's going to be pissed. Mm-hmm. Mm. A detective found the girl's boyfriend who said that he'd seen her at a known drug house yesterday morning. It was there, he told the detectives, that she said she wanted to kill her parents. The detective found the girl and she admitted to stealing her parents' debit card and making the transactions. She elaborated that $100 was used to buy cocaine and $400 was given to her friend to find someone to murder her parents. $400! Wait, was that like a finder's fee or was that for the murderer? I'm so confused. Uh, That friend failed the task, so she explained that she gave the other $900... To yeah, because the other friend probably bought $400 worth of cocaine. <laughs> she said she gave $900 to a black male to kill her parents. The, <laughs> like, oh, wait, what the fuck? The parent, She's like, oh, you're black. You're probably a murderer. Here you go. Like, what? <laughs> well, the parents found out and decided they wanted to press charges. 
The teen was uh, arrested. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the teen was arrested. She was born in North Carolina. We've chosen not to reveal her name in this article as the girl is under 18, and we don't know any of the circumstances that led to her decision. So obviously, they haven't wrapped that case up, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I have another one from the same source. A Florida man is behind bars after deputies say he pulled a gun on a woman at McDonald's after she ref- after she refused to try his vape pen. Nineteen-year-old <laughs> <laughs> Kyle yes, McGill. That's McGill. an appropriate response. <laughs> Nineteen. Why are they all so young? What is happening in Florida? Nineteen-year-old <laughs> Kyle McGill Walker was arrested um, on Friday. Whenever this was written yeah yeah the victim said walker approached her and asked if she'd like a hit of his vape pen she refused and walker said are you serious bro according to the arrest (laughs) affidavit he then lifted his shirt up to reveal a gun he pulled the piece out and began asking what's up now what's up now police say what What was in that vape pen what the fuck Shortly thereafter, police found him behind the Lewis Point Plaza, near to where the incident occurred. He was transported to the McDonald's, where surveillance video (laughs) confirmed the incident. Walker has been charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon without intent to kill. (laughs) (laughs) With intent to get someone to smoke his shit. Yeah, are you serious, bro? I'm offering you this, like, (laughs) sick-ass vape pen, and you're not even going to take a hit? in there? (laughs) (laughs) No way. No one says no oh. to my vape. Oh. So, yay, Florida, for giving us laughs. So <laughs> dumb. <laughs> They're so young, so dumb. <laughs> yay, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, and um, tune in again next week for some more horrible things we'll tell you. Right, and also, if you follow us on Instagram, I just caught up with all of it, so... I posted, like, a lot in one day. <laughs> but so, we're caught up now, so, yep. so check you, us out on Instagram. You can just check out a couple pictures from each case, see who we're talking about. That's always fun. And then... So it's nice to put a face to the name. To the horrible atrocities. Um, yeah. And rate, review, subscribe. Please send yeah. us an email at crimeanypodcast at gmail.com. Check out Humble Be Herbal. Buy some awesome products from them. Support a local business. It's probably not local to all of you because not all of you are from say, California. Support a small business. Support a small business. Yeah. Cool. And stay safe out there and get mental health help. Please. If you can. If you it's can. It's hard to afford it, you, but yeah. you know. If it's within your wheelhouse, do it. It's awesome. You'll love it. Oh, wheelhouse. Ooh. i sometimes know words Uh, you knew a lot more words than i did this time wheelhouse i don't know is it the same or similar as a pool house do you think that there are wheels in a house yeah it's for sure where you store all your wheels what else would it be gotcha okay well wheelhouse whether you have a wheelhouse or a pool house or no house at all we will be back next week for some more. Yeah, we gotta end shit. this. I've embarrassed myself enough. <laughs> oh god. Let's wrap up the humiliation. Alright. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. Now eat a peanut butter sandwich. Ew. Ew, Herb. You're rich. I like that. Ew. No, Tony.